The title of these talks that I'm giving here is Mind Over Mind. And I'm going into all the various problems which have to do with the control of the mind. And so I might introduce what I'm going to say by saying it from different points of view. For example, if you're interested in communications, it will be the problem of feedback. Or if I may put it in theological terms, how does man follow the will of God if the will of man is perverse? The theologians say, uh, you cannot do this without having divine grace or the power to follow the will of God. How then do you get grace? Why is grace given to some and not to others? If I cannot follow the will of God by my own effort because my will is selfish, how will my will which is selfish be transformed into an unselfish will? If I cannot do it because I am already the selfish will, then grace must do it. If grace has not already done it, why not? Because I didn't accept it, but by definition I had no power to accept it because my will was selfish. Must I then become a Calvinist and say that only those people who are predestined to receive grace will be able to live the good life? Then we come back to the inadmissible position that people who live evil lives and do not get grace because they are not predestined to it out of the infinite wisdom of the Godhead, then God himself must be held responsible for their evil deeds. And so that is a nice little tangle. If I put this in uh, the language of Oriental philosophy and religion, it would be something like this. The Buddha said that wisdom must come only from the abandonment of selfish craving or desire. One who abandons that desire attains nirvana, which is supreme peace, liberation. Nirvana means, in Sanskrit, blow out. That is, exhale the breath. The opposite desire is to breathe in. Now, if you breathe in and hold it, you lose your breath. But if you breathe out, it comes back to you. So the principle here is, if you want life, don't cling to it. Let go. But the problem is, if I desire not to desire, is that not already desire? How can I desire not to desire? How can I surrender myself when myself is precisely an urge to hold on?
to cling, to cling to life, to continue to survive. I can see rationally that by clinging to myself, I may strangle myself. I may be like a person who has a bad habit, as a result of which he is committing suicide. And he knows that, but can't give it up. Because the means of death are so sweet. So it all comes down to this basic question. That human beings have for a long, long time been concerned about transforming their minds. Is there any way in which one's mind can be transformed? Or is it simply a process which is nothing more than a vicious circle? I could ask, why have you come here this afternoon? What were you looking for? Would it be too presumptuous of me to say that you were looking for help? that you hoped you would hear somebody who had something to say that would be of help and relevance to you as members of a world which is running into the most intense difficulty. A world beset by a complex of problems, any one of which would be bad enough. But when you add together all the great political social and ecological problems with which we are faced, they are appalling. And one naturally says, the reason why we are in such a mess is not simply that we have wrong systems for doing things, whether they be technological, political, or religious, but we have the wrong people. The systems may be all right, but they are in the wrong hands because... We are all, in various ways, self-seeking, lacking in wisdom, lacking in courage, afraid of death, afraid of pain, unwilling really to cooperate with others, unwilling to be open to others. And we all think that's too bad. It's me that's wrong. And if only I could be the right person. Is this man going to tell me something that will help me to change myself so that I will be a more creative and cooperative member of the human race. I would like to improve. So in so many people's minds and from so many different angles, there is this urgent feeling that I must improve me. And this is critically important. Because it's obvious that, at least it's superficially obvious, that the way things are, we are going to hell fast. Now in this question, can I improve me? There is the obvious difficulty that if I am in need of improvement, The person who's going to do the improving is the one who needs to be improved. And there immediately we have a vicious circle. All right. You want grace. Well, ask God. Maybe he'll give it to you. 
And the theologian will tell you, yes, God gives his grace freely. He gives it to all because he loves all. It's here like the air. All you have to do is receive it. Or a more orthodox, a Catholic Christian would say, all you have to do is to be baptized, to take the holy sacrament of the altar, the bread and wine, the body and blood of Christ, and there is the grace right there. And it's given by these simple physical means so that it's uh, very easily and readily available. Well, a lot of people got baptized. And it doesn't always take. (laughs) People fall from grace. Why do they? You see, we're just talking about the same old problem, but we've put it a step up. But it's the same problem. How... Can I improve myself? Was the first problem. The second problem is, how can I accept grace? They're both the same problem. Because you've got to make a move. Which will put yourself out of your own control. Into the control of a better. If you don't believe in the Christian kind of a God, you can believe in the Hindu kind of a God. Who is your inner self. You see, you've got a lower self, which you can call your ego. That's that little scoundrelous fellow that's always out for me. But behind the ego, there is the Atman, the inner self, the inward light, as Quakers would call it, the real self, the spirit, which is substantially identical with God. So you've got to meditate in such a way that you identify with your higher self. Now, how do you do that? Well, you start by watching all your thoughts very carefully. Watching your feelings, watching your emotions. So that you begin to build up a sense of separation between the watcher and what is watched. So that you are, as it were, no longer carried away by your own stream of consciousness. You remain the witness, impassively, impartially, suspending judgment and watching it all go on. That seems to be something like progress. At least you're taking an objective view of what is going on. You are beginning to be in a position to control it, but just wait a minute. Who is this self? behind the self, the watching self. Can you watch that one? It's interesting if you do. Because you find out, of course, that this is, just as the problem of grace is nothing more than a transposition of the first problem. How am I to be unselfish? By my own power. It becomes how am I to get grace by my own power? So, in the same way, we find that the watching self or the observing self behind all our thoughts and feelings is itself a thought. That is to say, when the police enter a house in which there are thieves, the thieves go up from the ground floor to the first floor. When the police arrive on the first floor, the thieves have gone up to the second. And so to the third and finally out to the roof. And so when the ego is about to be unmasked, it immediately identifies with the higher self. It goes up a level. Because the religious game is simply 
a refined and highbrow version of the ordinary game. How can I outwit me? How can I one-up me? So, if I find, for example, that in the quest for pleasure, the ordinary pleasures of the world, food, sex, power, possessions, all this becomes a drag, and I think, no, it isn't there, so I go in for the arts, literature, poetry, music. And I absorb myself in, the, in those pleasures. And after a while, they aren't the answer. So I go to psychoanalysis, you see. And uh, then I find out that's not the answer. I go to religion. But I'm still seeking what I was seeking when I wanted candy bars. <laughs> I want to get that goody. Only I see now that, of course, it's not going to be a material goody. All material goodies fall apart. But maybe there's a spiritual goody that's not going to fall apart. But in that quest, the quest is not different from the quest for the candy bar. Same old story. Only you've refined the candy bar and made it abstract and holy and blessed and so on. So it is with the higher self. The higher self's your old ego. And you sure hope it is eternal. Indestructible and all wise. But then the great problem is how to get that higher self working. How, how does it make any difference to what you do and what you think? I know all kinds of people who've got this higher self going, practicing their yoga. But they're just like ordinary people. Sometimes a little worse. And, uh, they can fool themselves. They can say, for example, well, my point of view in religion is very liberal. I believe that all religions have uh, divine revelation in them. But I don't understand the way you people fight about it. You fight and say that uh, we... Um, Jehovah's Witnesses have the real religion. Others say, well, we Roman Catholics have it. And the Muslims say, no, it is in the Quran. And this is the right way. And somebody else gets up, and he may be a rather highbrow Catholic, and say, well, God has given the Spirit through all the traditions, but ours is the most refined and mature. And then somebody comes along and says, well, as I said, they're all equally revelations of the divine. And in seeing this, of course, I'm much more tolerant than you are. <laughs> you see how that game is going to work? See, I could take this position. Supposing you regard me as some sort of a guru. And you know how gurus hate each other. They're always putting each other down. And I could say, well, I don't put other gurus down. See, that outwits all of them. <laughs> See, we're always doing that. We're always finding a way 
to be one up. And by the most incredibly subtle means. So you see that, you see? And you say, I realize I'm always doing that. Now tell me, how do I not do that? I say, why do you want to know? (laughs) Well, I'd be better that way. Yeah, but why do you want to be better? You see, the reason you want to be better is the reason why you aren't. Shall I put it like that? We aren't better because we want to be. Because the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Because all the do-gooders in the world, whether they're doing good for others or doing it for themselves, are troublemakers. On the basis of kindly let me help you or you'll drown, said the monkey, putting the fish safely up a tree. (laughs) We white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, British, German, American, have been on a rampage for the past hundred or more years to improve the world. We have given the benefits of our culture, our religion, our technology to everybody, except perhaps the Australian Aborigines. And we have insisted that they receive the benefits of our culture, even our political styles, our democracy. You better be democratic, or we'll shoot you. (laughs) And having conferred these blessings all over the place, we wonder why everybody hates us. See, because sometimes doing good to others and even doing good to oneself is amazingly destructive. Because it's full of conceit. How do you know what's good for other people? How do you know what's good for you? If you say uh, you want to improve, then you ought to know what's good for you. But obviously you don't. Because if you did, you would be improved. So we don't know. It's like the problem of geneticists, which they face today. I went to a meeting of geneticists not so long ago where they gathered in a group of philosophers and theologians and said, now look here, we need help. We now are on the verge of figuring out how to breed any kind of human character uh, we would want to have. We can give you saints, philosophers, scientists, Great politicians, anything you want, just tell us what kind of human beings ought we to breed. So, I said, how will those of us who are genetically unregenerate make up our minds what genetically generate people might be? Because I'm afraid very much that our selection of virtues may not work. It may be like, for example, this new kind of high-yield grain which is made and uh, which is becoming ecologically destructive. When we interfere with the processes of nature and breed efficient plants and efficient animals, there's always some way in which we have to pay for it. And I can well see that eugenically produced human beings might be dreadful. We could have 
a plague of virtuous people. <laughs> Do you realize that? Any animal considered in itself is virtuous, it does its thing, but in crowds they're awful. Like a crowd of ants or locusts on the rampage. They're all perfectly good animals, but it's just too much. I could imagine a perfectly pestiferous mass of a million saints. <laughs> so I said to these people, look, there's the only thing you can do. Just be sure that a vast variety of human beings is maintained. Don't please breed us down to a few excellent types. Excellent for what? We never know how circumstances are going to change. And how our need for different kinds of people changes. At one time, we may need very individualistic and aggressive people. At another time, we may need very cooperative, teamworking people. At another time, we may need people who are full of interest in dexterous manipulation of the external world. At another time, we may need people who explore into their own psychology and are introspective. There is no knowing. But the more varieties and the more skills we have, obviously, the better. So, you see, here again, the problem comes out in genetics. We do not really know how to interfere with the way the world is. The way the world actually is, is an enormously complex, interrelated organism. The same problem arises in medicine because the body is a very complexly interrelated organism. And if you look at the body in a superficial way, you may see there's something wrong with it. It's chickenpox. And there's spots that itch that come all out all over the place. Well, you might say, well, spots are there, cut them off. So you kill the bug. Well, then you find you've got real problems. Because you have to introduce some bugs to kill the bug. It's like bringing rabbits into Australia. <laughs> and that starts going all over the place and getting out of hand. But then you think, well, now wait a minute. It wasn't the bugs in the blood. There are bugs all over the place. What was wrong with this person that his blood system suddenly became vulnerable to those particular bugs? His resistance wasn't up. Therefore, what you should have given him was not an antibiotic, but vitamins. Okay, so we're going to build up his resistance. But resistance to what? I mean, you may build up resistance to this and this and this class of bugs, but then there's another one that loves that situation and comes right in. See, we always look at the human being medically in bits and pieces because we have heart specialists, lung specialists, bone specialists, nerve specialists, and so on. And they each see the human being from their point of view. There are a few generalists, but they realize the human body is so complicated that no one mind can understand it. And furthermore, supposing we do succeed in healing all these people of their diseases, what do we then do about the population problem? I mean, we've stopped cholera, the black bubonic plague, we're getting the better of tuberculosis, we may fix cancer and heart disease. Then what will people die of? Well, then let's go on living. There will be enormous quantities of us. 
Then we have to fix this birth thing. Pills for everybody. Then we find what are the effects, the side effects of those pills? What are the psychological effects upon men and women of not breeding uh, children in the usual way? We don't know. And what seems a good thing today, or yesterday, like DDT, turns out tomorrow to have been a disaster. What seemed in the moral and spiritual sphere too, like great virtues in times past, are easily seen today as hideous evils. Let's take, for example, the Inquisition. In its own day, among Catholics, the Holy Inquisition was regarded as we today regard the practice of psychiatry. You, you see, you you feel that in curing a person of cancer, almost anything is justified. The most complex operations, the most weird surgery, people suspended for days and days on end on the end of tubes with X-ray penetration, burning, or people undergoing shock treatment, people locked, in the colorless, monotonous corridors of mental institutions. In all good faith, they knew that witchcraft and heresy were terrible things, awful plagues, imperiling people's souls forever and ever. So any means were justified to cure people of heresy. We don't change. We're doing the same thing today, but under different names. We can look back at those people and see how evil that was, but we can't see it in ourselves. So therefore, beware of virtue. Lao Tzu, the Chinese philosopher, said, the highest virtue is not virtue. And therefore really is virtue. But inferior virtue cannot let go of being virtuous. And therefore is not virtue. Translated uh, in more of a periphrastic way. The highest virtue is not conscious of itself as virtue. And therefore really is virtue. Lower virtue is so self-conscious that it's not virtue. In other words, when you breathe you don't congratulate yourself on being virtuous. But breathing is a great virtue. It's living. When you come out with beautiful eyes, blue or brown or green as the case may be, you don't congratulate yourself for having grown one of the most fabulous jewels on earth. So it's just eyes. And you don't account it a virtue. To see, to entertain the miracles of color and form. You say, oh, that's just... But that's real virtue. Virtue in the sense, the old sense of the word, a strength, is when we talk about the healing virtue of a plant. That's real virtue. But the other virtues are stuck on. They are ersatz, they are imitation virtues. And they usually create trouble. Because more diabolical things are done in the name of righteousness 
and be assured that everybody of whatever nationality or political frame of mind or religion always goes to war with a sense of complete rightness. The other side is the devil. Our opponents, whether in China or Russia or Vietnam, have the same feeling of righteousness about what they're doing as we have on our side. And a plague on both houses. Because, as Confucius said, the goody-goodies are the thieves of virtue. which is the form of our own proverb, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So in a way the moral, or the immoral, of (laughs) these considerations is that if you are really aware of your own inner workings, you will realize there's nothing you can do to improve yourself. Because you don't know what better is, in any case. And you, who will do the improving, are the one who needs to be improved. And this also goes for society. We can change society. We can get enormous enthusiasm going out of the idea that there is a revolution afoot and that this revolution is going to set everything to right. Do you know a revolution that ever set anything to right? whether the revolution came from the left wing or from the right wing, the best forms of government that have ever existed in the world are those which muddled through. Where they didn't have any very clear uh, setup of control, but they muddled along. A kind of what I'll call controlled anarchy seems to work out better than anything else. When we have a great system and great power to put it into effect, there is always more violence, more bloodshed, more trouble. It makes no difference whether it be Chairman Mao or Adolf Hitler. So, what instead, therefore, if we see that you can't outwit yourself, You can't be, shall I say, unselfconscious on purpose. You can't be designedly spontaneous. And you cannot be genuinely loving by intending to love. Either you love someone or you don't. If you pretend to love a person, you deceive them and build up reasons for resentment. You say, well, I ought to be honest. That's that's the beginning of, oh, so many lies you can't imagine. It's like when I hear a lot said about love, the big love thing on the way. Everybody's got to love everybody. Everybody sings songs about love. Do you know what I do? I buy a gun and bar my door because I know there's a storm of hypocrisy brewing. So, let's look at this thing from another point of view, which you will at first think highly depressing. Let's supposing we can't do anything to change ourselves. 
Suppose we're stuck with it. Now that is the, the worst thing an American audience can hear. There's no way of improving yourself. Because every kind of culture in this country is dedicated to self-improvement. Just take jogging, that deplorable practice. It's a very nice thing to run and to go dancing across the hills at a fast speed. But these joggers are shaking their bones and rattling their brains with running on their heels. And because there's a grimness about it, it's determinately good for you. See? Why do you go to school? Now, wait a minute. You may not clap when I'm through. (laughs) There's only one reason for going to school. And that is that somebody's got something here, whether it's a professor or a library, that you want to find out. That you are incredibly interested in um, (laughs) how to write Chinese characters or how to understand botany. And you would like to know. You're just interested in flowers. And you would like to find out everything there is to be known about them. That's the point of coming here. Or you might like to know how to practice yoga. There are courses now being offered at UCLA on Kundalini Yoga for credit. (laughs) Pretty funny. When I think back ten years. But the whole point of coming to school is that you're interested in something. You don't come to improve yourself. But the trouble is that the schools got the wrong idea. They gave people honors for learning. And the reward for studying French should be the ability to speak French and enjoy reading French and having fun with French people. But when you get a degree for it, then the degree becomes the point in a game of one-upmanship. And, of course, one-upmanship is the main business of the educational uh, community today. You learn all the rules of how to be a good professor. It's instructive to go to a a professional professor's meeting in my field, which is philosophy, you go to a congress of philosophers, and you'll find when they all get together in the bar or in the restaurant and somebody's room, the one thing they don't talk about is philosophy. <laughs> it is very bad form indeed to show interest in philosophy among your colleagues. The same is exactly true in clergy gatherings. They don't talk about religion. What they both talk about is politics, church politics and academic politics. Because it's bad form to be brilliant on a faculty. Because it outclasses your colleagues. Therefore, faculty people tend to cultivate a studied mediocrity. (laughs) And you've got to watch out for that. I mean, if you get mobs of students coming to your lectures, you get pretty black looks from your colleagues. And then, of course, there's a whole world of one-upmanship in research and publication of learned papers. How many, what's the the relative quantity of footnotes to basic texts and footnotes on footnotes? 
and the various ways of making your bibliography painfully accurate. And, and it's endless. But you see, what it is, it's scholarship about scholarship and not scholarship. Just as learning, because learning is good for you, is irrelevant to learning. The whole idea of improving yourself by learning is irrelevant to the learning process. And in the same way, doing business is doing business. Doing business, such as um, manufacturing uh, clothes, is a very good thing to do. I could conceive that it would be extremely enjoyable, something one could be very proud of, to make good clothes. Of course, you need to sell them because you need to eat. But to make clothes to make money raises another question. Because then your interest is not in making clothes, it's in making money, and then you're going to cheat on the clothes. And then you get an awful lot of money and you don't know what to do with it. You can't, you know, you can't eat ten roasts of beef in one day. Can't live in six houses at once. Can't drive three Rolls Royces at the same time. What are you to do? Well, you can just go make more money. You put your money back. Invest it in something else and it'll make more. And you don't give a damn how it's made so long as they make it. You don't care if they foul the rivers, put oil fumes throughout the air everywhere, kill off all the fish. So not, so long as you see these figures happening. You're not aware of anything else. So, you see, you went out to do a self-improvement thing. Making money, you see, is a measure of improvement. A measure of your economic worthwhileness. Or at least that's what it's supposed to be. It isn't anything of the kind. But you went out, in other words, for the status instead of for the actuality. So if, in other words, you, you do an art, you're a musician... Why do you play music? The only re reason for playing music is to enjoy it. If you play music to impress an audience, to be read about yourself in the newspaper, you're not interested in music. So in the same way, why do I come and talk to you? Because I enjoy it. I like the sound of my own voice. I'm interested in what I'm talking about, and I get paid for it. And that's smart in this life, is to get paid for what you enjoy. So here's the situation, you see. There is no, the, the, the whole idea of self-improvement is a, uh, is a will-o'-the-wisp and a hoax. That's not what it's about. Let's begin where we are. What happens if you know, if you know beyond any shadow of doubt that there is nothing you can do to be better? Well, it's kind of a relief, isn't it? Now, you say, well, now what will I do? <laughs> See, there's a little fidget comes up. Because we're so used to um, if, making things better. Leave the world a better place than when you found it, sort of thing. I want to be of service to other people and all these dreadfully hazy ideas. And uh, so... We think, there's that little itch still. But supposing instead of that, seeing that there isn't really anything we can do to improve ourselves or to improve the world, if we realize that that is so, it gives us a breather 
in the course of which we may simply watch what is going on. Watch what happens. Nobody ever does this, you know. And therefore, it sounds terribly simple. It sounds so simple that it's almost, it looks as if it isn't worth doing. Have you ever just watched? Watch what's happening. And watch what you are doing by way of reaction to it. Just watch it happen. And don't be in a hurry to think you know what it is. In other words, people look at the, say, oh, that's the external world. Oh, how do you know? The whole thing from a neurological point of view, is a happening in your head. That you think there is something outside the skull is a notion in your nervous system. There may or may not be, but it's a notion in your nervous system. Hmm. You think this is the material world. Well, that's somebody's philosophical idea. Or maybe you're, you think it's spiritual. That too is somebody's philosophical idea. This real world is not spiritual. It is not material. The real world is simply So could we look at things in that way? Without, as it were, fixing labels and names and gradations and judgments on everything. But watch what happens. Watch what we do. Now, you see, if you do that, you do at least give yourself a chance. And it may be that when you are in this way freed from busybodiness and being out to improve everything, that your own nature will begin to take care of itself. Because you're not getting in the way of yourself all the time. (coughs) You will begin to find out that the great things that you do are really happenings. For example, no great genius can explain how he does it. Yes, he said, I have learned a technique to express myself. Because I had something in me that had to come out, I had to know how to give it out. So if I were a musician, I had to learn how music is produced. That means learning to use an instrument or learning a technique of musical notation or whatever it may be. If I want to describe something, I have to learn a language so that others can understand me. I I need a technique. But then beyond that, I'm afraid I can't tell you how it was that I used that technique to express this mysterious thing I wanted to show you. If we could tell people that, we would have schools where we would infallibly train musical geniuses, scientific uh, miracle minds. And there would be so many of them, we, we wouldn't know what to do with them. Geniuses would be a dime a dozen. And then we would say, well, these people are, after all, not very ingenious. You know, PhDs, how many of them are there? Because what is fascinating always about genius is the fellow does something we can't understand. He surprises us. 
But you see, just in the same way, we cannot understand our own brains. Neurology knows relatively little about the brain, which is only to say that the brain is a lot smarter than neurology. <laughs> yes, yeah, there is this, which can perform all these extraordinary intellectual and cultural miracles. But we don't know how we did it. But we did. We didn't have some campaign to have an improved brain over the monkeys or whatever may be our ancestors. It happened. And all growth, you see, is fundamentally something that happens. But for it to happen, two things are important. And the first is, as I said, you must have the technical ability to express what happens. And secondly, you must get out of your own way. But right at the bottom of the whole problem of control is how am I to get out of my own way? And if I showed you a system, let's all practice getting out of our own way. It would turn into another form of self-improvement. See, here's the dynamics of this thing. And we find this problem, you see, repeatedly throughout the entire history of human spirituality. In the phraseology of Zen Buddhism, you cannot get this by thinking. You cannot attain to it by not thinking. It is only, you see, as you... as getting out of your own way ceases to be a matter of choice. When you see that there's nothing else for you to do. When you see, in other words, that doing something about your situation is not going to help you. When you see equally that trying not to do anything about it is not going to help you. Where are you? Where do you stand? You're nonplussed. And you are simply reduced to watching. Now you may say, I need some help in this process, and therefore I am going to find someone else to help me. It may be a therapist. It may be a clergyman. It may be a guru. It may be any kind of person who teaches a technique of self-improvement. Now, how will you know whether this person is able to teach you? How can you judge, for example, whether a psychotherapist is effective or just a charlatan? How can you judge whether a guru is himself spiritually wise or merely a good chatterbox? Well, of course, you ask your friends, you ask his other students or patients, and they're all, of course, enthusiastic. You have to be enthusiastic when you've bought something expensive. If you bought an automobile, which turned out to be a lemon, it's very difficult to admit that it was a lemon and that you were fooled. And it's the same when you buy a religion or an expensive operation. But what people do not sufficiently realize is that when you pick an authority, whether it's a psychotherapeutic one or a religious one, 
You chose it. In other words, that this fellow or this book or this system is the right one is your opinion. And how are you competent to judge? After all, if you are saying to this other person or other source, I think you are the authority, that's your opinion. So you cannot really judge whether an authority is a sound authority unless you yourself are a sound authority. Otherwise you may just be being fooled. You may say, for example, I believe that the Bible is the word of God. All right, that's your opinion. I know the Bible says it's the word of God, but it's your opinion that the Bible is not lying. The church says the Bible is the word of God, but it's your opinion that the church is right. You cannot escape from that situation. It's your opinion. So you see, when you select an authority who will help you to improve yourself, it's like hiring the police out of your tax money and putting them in charge of seeing that you obey the law. I mean, can't you take care of yourselves? I mean, is this the land of the free and the home of the brave, or isn't it? But you see, nobody seems to want to be in charge of themselves because they feel they can't do it. As St. Paul said, to will is present with me. But how to do good, I find not. For the good that I would, I do not, and the evil that I would not, that I do. <laughs> so, there at once, we, we are in difficulty. Because trying to improve yourself is like trying to lift yourself up into the air by tugging at your own bootstraps. And it can't be done. Now, there are all sorts of ways in which religious people try to explain that it can be done. I referred already to the grace of God. They say, no, you can't do the job yourself. Because the improving you is the one that needs to be improved. Therefore, you have to say, God, help me. Now, of course, that God exists is your opinion. That God will answer your prayer is your opinion. And your idea of God is your idea of God. If you bought somebody else's script, you bought it. Maybe your mother and father talked to you about God in a very impressive way. But basically, you bought their idea. And if you're a father yourself, I'm a grandfather now, I've got five grandchildren. And I know I'm as stupid as my own grandfather must have been. You know, I am one. I sit there in the position which they look at. They go, oh, wowee, that's an important man. <laughs> I know that. I'm just like anyone else. So, I hope my children are not believing things on my authority. Because it's always their authority. If I look impressive and make big noises at them, they've just been taken in.
Yesterday, I was giving you a general outline of the foundations of the Zen feeling for naturalness in art and life by describing the fundamental principles of the Taoist philosophy and then of the Zen discipline itself. And we saw that the roots of the idea of spontaneous living make this conception, or rather it isn't so much a conception as a doing, um, something much more subtle than might ordinarily be imagined. A lot of people think that the spontaneous or completely natural life as it's understood by these Far Eastern philosophers is to act according to whim. There was, for example, a great Zen monk of, uh, lived shortly after 1000 AD who had a very peculiar way of painting. He had long hair and he would soak, he'd get very drunk on uh, rice wine. Then he'd soak his hair in ink and slosh it all over the paper. Then he would do a Rorschach test on it. <laughs> and decide what kind of a landscape it actually was <laughs> and then put in the finishing touches <laughs> and suddenly out of this apparent mess a great landscape would be evoked but the whole art of the thing lay in putting in the finishing touches and also there's a very curious thing if a person who is untrained in painting, makes a mess with a brush, it's liable to be just a mess. Whereas if a person who has the feeling of painting in them for a long time, and they make a mess with a brush or just do anything, uh, it looks interesting. And that's why if you try uh, to copy the best people in modern, abstract, non-objective painting, you'll find it's a very difficult thing to do. Because there is more to spontaneity than caprice and disorder. And I want to try and explain what that is. I mean, wouldn't it be great if we could live absolutely on the spur of the moment? Not make any uh, particular plans, not feel that... Uh, well, you might make plans because you could make plans spontaneously. But not to worry about whether you had made the right decision, whether you were being good or bad, selfish or unselfish, and not to hesitate in anything, you see. In uh, one of the great applications of Zen was to the art of fencing. And when you learn fencing, you see you have to learn to be spontaneous, because here of all places it is true that he who hesitates is lost. If you're engaged in combat, you see, and you stop to think what sort of a defense or attack you ought to make, the enemy's got you. So the way they teach people spontaneity in fencing is very interesting. When you start in to fencing school, you, of course, live with the teacher. He has a kind of ashram. And, but you're given a janitorial job. You clean up, you wash dishes, you put bedding away and things like that. While you're going about your daily business, the master surprises you with a practice sword, 
which is made of four strips of bamboo rather loosely tied together. And he hits you with this, surprisingly and suddenly, from nowhere. And you were expected to defend yourself with anything available, with the bedding, with the broom, with the pots and pans, the, just anything, defend. But the poor student never knows when the attack is coming, or where, what direction it's coming from, and he begins to get tense. And he begins to go around everywhere on the sort of alert, you see, watching, watching which direction it's coming from. And as he goes down a certain passage, feeling that the master is probably lurking around that corner, and he's all set to go for him with that, that he gets that practice sword, he suddenly gets hit from behind. <laughs> so eventually, he gives up. There's absolutely no way of preparing for the attack. And so he just wanders around, feeling, well, if it hits, it's going to hit. <laughs> and then uh, he's ready to begin fencing. Because if you prepare for an attack from a specific direction, and it comes from some other direction, you have to withdraw from the direction in which you had expected it, and send your energy in another direction, and that takes time. So what you do is, you go around with a mind of no expectation. That is called uh, mushin, or munen. This is a very important Zen expression. It almost means an empty mind. Uh, you could also call it no heart, because the character shin means both heart and mind, but it isn't quite the same as our word heartless, as we use it, and it isn't the same as the word mindless, as we use it, meaning stupid. To be in the state of Mushin is to have a mind like a mirror. And of this, uh, the Taoist sage Zhuangzi said, the perfect man employs his mind as a mirror. It grasps nothing, it refuses nothing, it receives but does not keep. And when uh, anything comes in front of the mirror, it reflects it instantly. The mirror doesn't wait to reflect it. They also say, when the moon rises... All bodies of water instantly reflect the moon. I mean, they, they, don't, they don't bother with physics about the speed of light or anything like that. It's irrelevant. <laughs> or they say when you clap your hands, the sound issues immediately. It doesn't stop to consider whether it will issue. And so sparks from the flint, when it's struck, they issue instantly. But to do this, you can't try to be quick. See, if a Zen master corners you with a funny situation and he puts you in a quandary expecting spontaneous action from you, don't try to hurry. I've watched Suzuki wait a whole minute before answering. But he doesn't hesitate. <laughs> He's not at all embarrassed by this wait. And he can answer with silence just as well as with a formal response. The point is, do something. When uh, two young Americans wanted to study Zen, they uh, were taken by a Japanese monk to interview the master and act as interpreter. And one of them had had some practice, you know, he knew a bit about it. And so after they'd had tea together and just discussed formalities, the master said in a very easy way, well, what do you gentlemen know about Zen? And one of these students threw his fan, which he hadn't unfolded. The fan was still folded up. He threw it straight at the master's face. 
the master slightly moved to one side and the fan went and went right through the paper wall. And the master laughed like a child. That's the sort of game they get in. Once the master was uh, going around through the forest with a group of students and he picked up a tree branch. You know, just as one might pick up a tree branch. And suddenly he turned to one of his students and said, what is it? And he hesitated, so he hit it with the branch. And so another student was there, and he turned to him quickly. He said, what is it? He said, give it to me, I want to see it. I'll tell you. So the master tossed the branch to him, and he took it and hit the master. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you may think all this is kind of rough stuff. But let me give you another story, which is on a rather different level. A certain Zen priest was having dinner at a big party and the party was being served by a geisha girl who was so elegant and so skillful in serving that he suspected she might have had some Zen training. And so he decided to try her out. And he nodded to her and she immediately came to his place and sat down in front of his little low table. See, everybody would be seated, probably, in front of low tables all around a room, and the geisha servants and people move up and down in the middle. And so she came down and sat down in front of him and bowed, and he said, I would like to give you a present. And she said, I would be most honored. Now, on the table, there there are hibachi, uh, which are little braziers with hot charcoal in, and you move the charcoal around with iron chopsticks. He took a piece of charcoal out in iron chopsticks and offered it to her. She had long, long sleeves on her kimono, and what she did was this. She wound them all around her hands and took the charcoal. Immediately got up and went to the kitchen, disposed of the charcoal, changed her robe, which had holes burnt all the way through the sleeves, and came back. And she sat down in front of the master and bowed. And he said, and she said to him, I would like to give you a present. He said, I would be most honored. <laughs> and so she picked up the hand chopsticks and handed him the charcoal. And he pulled out a cigarette and said, that's just what I wanted. And lit the cigarette. <laughs> now, here's the lesson. The master's spontaneity and being ready for that situation was the kind of quick thinking that a good comedian has, who, in a completely unprepared way, can make all sorts of jokes and turn any situation into a jest of some kind. Uh, there are all sorts of people who do that. Uh, people who are experts in kind of like Dorothy Parker, in that sort of repartee. But here it's been developed in a, a very fundamental way and to a very high degree. Now, the way in which it's developed, you see, requires a protected situation. Because if we all started to act on the spur of the moment, without the slightest consideration or deliberation, if we all started to act on pure whim, everybody would think we were crazy. And that people would avoid us and call the police and things like that. But what they do is this. They start you doing this in the context of a disciplined situation where there are very rigid rules for most of the time, but there are certain instances at which all those rules go hang. 
And you're in a community which understands the game. Because the point is this. When you start acting spontaneously, you're not used to doing it. And therefore, your responses are unintelligent. And inappropriate. But when you become used to doing this, and when it becomes second nature to you to act in the state of motion, of no mind or no deliberation, then your behavior has matured and you find that you're accustomed to respond quite appropriately as the Zen master did in lighting his cigarette from the charcoal. So also in, a, in learning the art of swordsmanship, when he has given up defending himself, preparing his mind for attack, then he's got a mirror mind. This is also likened to a vessel of water, like a wooden barrel. When you make a hole in the barrel, the water instantly flows out of the hole. Because the water is always available to come out. It doesn't have to uh, choose. And so you could also say that mushin is what Krishnamurti calls choicelessness. And uh, because you see choice in this sense is not quite the same thing as decision. Choice means dithering. You know, there are some people who before they start to write something down, they, they wiggle their pens a little. Uh, the pen dithers over the paper, and then they start to write. And so in the same way, a lot of people in the, constantly in the life situation, they dither, because that dithering is anxiety. To be or not to be, that is the question. Well, there is no question about to be or not to be. See, because to be and not to be go together, as we saw, they arise mutually. So then, in uh, the situation of the Zen community, safeguards are set up within which you can learn how to act without deliberation, which is, you see, in a sense, going back to the state of innocence. Now, it doesn't mean that you give up thinking It doesn't mean that you become an anti-intellectual. You all can also learn, and this is part of the later phases of Zen training, how to think spontaneously. How to deliberate spontaneously. The saying is, you see, stand or walk as you will, but whatever you do, don't wobble. (laughs) So this is our difficulty. Because the human mind... Uh, has, is a feedback system. Feedback has a peculiar susceptibility to nervousness. There was a young man who said, though, it seems that I know that I know. What I would like to see is the eye that knows me when I know that I know that I know. <laughs> you see? Now, in this way, we think about thinking We worry about worrying. And then when that really gets bad, you worry because you worry about worrying. (laughs) Now that is analogous exactly to the kinds of vibration that are set up in certain mechanical systems. For example, if you... uh, I I did this trick on television once. 
I had the, the cameraman turn the camera on the monitor. The monitor is the television set in the studio where you see what you are doing. And so on this, this show I said, now I'm going to show you a picture of anxiety. Don't worry about your sets. There's not going to be anything wrong with your set, so don't turn it off. Now, I said, Mr. Cameraman, will you please turn the camera on the monitor? He does that. Now, what does he do? He's taking a picture of taking a picture, all in the same system. And as you do that, the system starts going like that. You see, it makes a sense up a kind of oscillation. And you see on the screen all these jagged lines dancing across. Now that's what's meant, you see, by hesitation, attachment, blocking, all that kind of thing which the Zen discipline is designed to overcome. And because the human being is such a peculiarly beautifully organized nervous system and has this tremendously subtle cortex which is capable of all kinds of thinking about thinking, you, you, you can turn yourself on in the most extraordinary ways by, for example, getting uh, earphones which repeat what you say just a fraction of a second after you say it back to you. They delay it. And you can get an oscilloscope tied up with your own heartbeats and get feedback through in this way so that you suddenly begin to see yourself behaving and it completely balls you up because you wait for yourself to go on. But then you realize it's you doing it. But you can't wait on your heartbeat. You can't wait on what you say. And you get this sensation of going faster and faster and faster and faster until you just have to close the whole thing off. <laughs> You'll go crazy. So that's what we're doing. And our civilization and our social institutions reflect this in hundreds of ways. And this would be true of any civilization, because all civilization is based on the development of consciousness and feedback. That is to say, the property of self-control, of being self-conscious, looking at what you've done, and then being able to criticize it and correct it. But who criticizes? Is the critic reliable? When you criticize yourself, who will criticize the critic? You see? Or to put it in the other way, quis custodiate ipsos custodies. Who will guard the guards themselves? Who will take care of the policemen? Who will govern the president? And that is the big problem. And when we get tied up in that problem, the Chinese got tied up in it because they were simply a very high order of civilization. So did the Japanese. There has to be a break. Somebody has to start throwing things. Otherwise, everybody will go insane. So, Zen functions in that culture as a way of liberation from the tangle of being too civilized. Now, you see, in Japanese culture, people are tremendously concerned with propriety with good manners, and with uh, keeping up with the Joneses. 
One of the funniest things in the world is to watch Japanese people having a bowing contest. <laughs> uh, it's a very frequent thing when friends meet or take leave. They go, <sighs> and they bow and they bow and they respond. It goes back and forth and see who gets the last one in because I'm more polite than you. <laughs> and the worries about when somebody comes, you know, you visit a family, you always bring a gift. And they start worrying, is this gift suitable? Uh, what is it anything as good as the gift they last gave us and uh, is it right for the occasion have we thought about it enough is there some symbolism in this gift that connects with this person's name or their birthday or something like that and they think about these things determinately and thus they cultivate in the, the ordinary culture uh, has a great deal of social nervousness in it people giggle you often see girls who giggle and cover their mouths to say I'm not really giggling uh, all sorts of funny things happen because of this immense social awareness and nervousness now Zen breaks that up only it does it in a way that is has high artistry to it so you see in, let's just take the, the, the aesthetic domain for the moment. In the whole history of ceramics, the Chinese developed some of the most elegant work imaginable. You are probably aware, I don't see a specimen, of the great work of the Sung and Korean potters. Very often done in a jade-like green the most gorgeous uh, texture. Uh, it looked practically as if it was carved out of jade. Well, that led on, you see, to the, the high techniques of the Ming Dynasty with translucent porcelain, white clay, the most subtle designs of all. And that style went also to Japan. And the very, very rich people you read about in, say, books like The Tale of Genji, and you see in a film, and you must see it, Chushingura, uh, the story of the 47 Ronin, the lovely things they had around their houses were unbelievable. The lacquer, the boxes in pure gold, and, uh, oh, you know, it was delicious stuff. But then, it was just like having too much eclairs and uh, ice cream and filet mignon and uh, cooked à la carême, you know, that French cook who made everything look like an oriental palace. And uh, now what happened? The people who practiced them suddenly got an eye for the beauty of the ordinary. There were two reasons for this. One was that they became fascinated with what happened spontaneously. What pattern a brush would make when handled roughly and the hairlines were shown. They also, because they practiced Sazen, which is sitting quietly, not thinking of anything special, but having a completely open mind. That puts you into a state 
where you get much better eyes and ears than you ordinarily have. And you start really seeing things. So you know that famous haiku poem, The Old Pond, A Frog Jumps In, Plop. In Japanese, that plop is mizu no otto, sound of the water. And there's another poem just like it. In the dark forest, a berry drops, the sound of the water. Somebody suddenly realized, you see, just the sound of the water is, is marvelous. That's all. They found that um, they kept getting in very, very cheap Korean rice bowls. The poorest, cheapest kind for peasants to eat out of. And suddenly it struck one of these Zen masters that that was an incomparably beautiful object. Nobody had seen this before. They also had the simplest wooden ladles, uh, bamboo, and then a stick in it for use in the kitchen. And one day somebody noticed that this ordinary, everyday kitchen utensil was just lovely. And so in the same way, they found that it was quite as satisfactory to listen to the kettle boiling as to listen to an elaborate concert. So what did they do? They started through particularly a man called Senna Rikyu to give parties for very small, few guests in shacks, little huts in the garden made of uh, very primitive materials such as mud walls and where they would go and sit and out of the simplest utensils carefully chosen by a superb artist, they would simply sit and enjoy the uncomplicated life. And so was born the tea ceremony. Now look at that, you see, in the historical context. That's terribly important. It was a going back to the primitive after people were sick of too much civilization. And yet, it was going on to the primitive rather than back. Because the people who selected all those things, they knew the whole tradition of their civilization, their culture. They weren't barbarians. This became the rage. Rikyu became attached to the court. The shogun had tea with Rikyu. And everybody started getting digging tea ceremony. And in due course, the whole thing became awful. Because uh, what's happened today is this. Tea ceremony is essentially something uh, to enjoy. And there are a few men left who know how to serve tea ceremony. And it's an extremely congenial, quiet get-together of easy conversation, simple and unostentatious manners, and really lovely things to look at. 
I was present at a tea ceremony celebrated by a Zen monk who happens to be an American. And he is a man who uh, has done a lot of mountaineering. And he has, therefore, with him at all times, uh, the sort of equipment that you take on camping in the mountains, because he does a lot of climbing in Japan. And I said to him, won't you, uh, this afternoon would be very nice to have the tea ceremony, and you did it once before here, and it was so pleasant. Would you serve it again? He said, yes, by all means. Before, he had served tea ceremony in the style that Zen monks do it, which is rather simple and direct and much more comfortable than all these well-educated ladies who are on tittering about it and are on tiptoe and nervous and hoping they won't make a mistake and all that kind of thing. It's just dreadful. <laughs> so he suddenly came in with a small primer stove. Set that down. Then he had an old paint pot which had inside it an aluminum mug. He set that down. He then proceeded to take the aluminum mug out, pour water into the paint pot, and set that on the primer stove, but he ritually pumped up the primer stove. He did everything in the style of tea ceremony, but this was a dirty old primer stove. <laughs> and suddenly the thing began to flame like the god Fudo. And... Uh, he mixed the tea in the traditional way with the whisk, had all the perfect, lovely manners, handing us the aluminum cup. And we got into a long... We, it's a custom after the tea ceremony, after you've drunk, to pass all the utensils round for inspection. This is exactly what happened. And we found that the aluminum cup had the year 1945 stabbed on it for some reason. <laughs> we got into a discussion about styles of aluminum cups made in 1945. <laughs> and it was the funniest thing. But it was a, a, a complete makeover of the tea ceremony into the modern idiom. Uh, of course, the tea drunk in tea ceremony is that powdered green tea uh, which you don't steep like you make ordinary tea. You whisk it uh, and mixed with a small amount of hot water into a froth, and it's called liquid jade. And it's a bit of an acquired taste for most Westerners. It tastes a little bit like a mixture of mate tea and Guinness. <laughs> but when you get to know it, it's very invigorating and uh, very awakening. And if you make up a strong mixture of it, it's a good thing to use if you want to stay awake all night and do work. <laughs> and so you see, it's a, the legend was that um, Zen monks started this interest in tea because they needed it to stay awake during uh, their practice of meditation. And it's said that Bodhidharma is always drawn with eyes that are wide open. Why? Because he hasn't got any eyelids. Once when he was meditating, he fell asleep. And he was furious and cut his eyelids off. And as they dropped on the ground, up came the first tea plants. That's why they have leaves shaped like eyelids. And are, are to be drunk ever thereafter for staying awake. So the plant of Buddhism, tea is the Buddhist drink, just like wine is the Christian drink. Coffee is the Islamic drink. And milk, the Hindu drink. Every religion has its, has its drink. So then around this kind of appreciation, born of stillness and the delight in seeing how nature takes its course, 
came the entire cult of Zen art with its special kind of primitivity, its special ceramics, its special calligraphic styles, and its special gardens, which are the controlled accident. Now you see, this is a water jar. They, leave, they like to leave the bottom unglazed. You can really see that it's clay that way. But look, you see how the glaze has been allowed to run. It's that we would call not neat at all. And you watch somebody make one of these. And uh, I have watched a man just pick up the plate. And as he applies the design of the glaze, he just goes whoosh with a brush. And lets it drop on. And it's done. There's another man who glazes by uh, wood smoke. And in his kiln, he may put about 1,100 pieces. And he wraps them in straw. And wherever the straw touches, it leaves a splash of uh, orange color against the purple background. Now, you see, the straw arranges itself according to the nature of straw. It doesn't follow strict human direction. And the fascination is when they open up that kiln and bring the things out, they look eagerly to see, what has the straw done? So, this principle of letting glaze run to see what will happen is Wu Wei. This is non-interference. This is Mu Xin also. No purpose, or it can also be translated. No specific intent. And now, of course, you see sometimes this doesn't work. And the master picks it up and says, that's not very interesting, and rejects it. What are the canons of taste which decide whether he will accept one of these accidents or reject it? Because here an additional principle of control enters. So you say in the practice of calligraphy, a man may sit down with a huge pile of paper in front of him, and do piece after piece after piece. And if it isn't just right, he throws it away. So he eventually makes a selection that comes out. There's a famous story of a Zen master who was doing calligraphy. And he had a very smart monk standing beside him who was his assistant. And the monk said, uh-uh, to each one as he did it. You can do better than that. Oh, no, no, come now. You, you know much better than that. This master got more and more furious, but the monk had to go out to the benjo, to the toilet for the moment. And he thought, quick, while he's away, he did it. And the monk came back and looked at me and he said, a masterpiece. Uh, so there's this element of selection, you see. Now, what, what determines this? How do you know? Or another example of this. There was a tea caddy. Porcelain tea caddy. Not porcelain, but clay. And uh, when Senna Rikyu 
was having tea ceremony, he saw this tea caddy and made no comment on it. And the owner was so disappointed that he smashed it. But one of his friends picked the broken pieces out of the trash can and took them to a mender. He said, look, mend this with gold. And he put there for gold uh, cement and put this caddy back together. And so it had all over its surface spidery lines of gold. And when Ricky saw that, he was just enchanted. And it became one of the most valuable tea caddies in uh, the Japanese collections. Spidery lines of gold following just the apparently chance marks of a smash. There was a competition at the Art Institute in the University of Chicago in which uh, the it was a sculpture class and the competition was that each student was given a cubic foot of plaster of Paris. And they said, now do something with it. Well, the prize was won by a woman who looked at this cube and said, it has no character. It doesn't want to be anything. So she flung it on the floor and smashed it all up. I mean, she made dents in it and banged off the corners and put cracks in it and things. Then she looked at it again. She said, ah, now I know what it wants to be. And so she followed the grain in it, as it were, made by all these cracks and produced this marvelous piece of sculpture. You have in this area a very ingenious sculptor by the name of Donald Horde, who um, is a master at following the grain in wood and actually making the grain. The grain seems to suggest to him the muscles and the flow of the kind of body that he's making. Uh, well, that's the thing. So, when a master decides whether the accident came off, what he wants is this. He wants the thing to be the perfect harmony of man and nature, of order and randomness. Now, this is a curious thing in the human mind. When we play games, we get most fascination out of those games which satisfactorily combine skill and chance. Games like bridge, poker, uh, have a, a sort of admirable combination of these two elements. And we can go on playing those games again and again and again because you don't feel completely at the mercy of chance as you do with dice unless you cheat. And uh, you don't feel completely at the mercy of skill as you do with chess or especially with a game like three-dimensional chess. So there's a sort of optimum middle where order and randomness go together. Well, that's what this man is looking for. He's looking for the optimal combination. You see, things that are artwork like uh, Persian miniatures or the jewelry of Cellini um, and uh, Chinese porcelain is too much skill, too much order. It's like those houses you go into where you don't put an ash in the tray because everything is so clean and everything is so tidy, you don't touch it. One prefers a house, you see, that looks a little lived in, that is more genial, more comfortable, somehow invites you to sit down and even put your feet on the table. Whereas on the other extreme, some kind of pad 
where uh, everything is covered in dirt and uh, <laughs> filthy clothes are thrown in the corner and, uh, you know, people are all paint all over them and so on. Uh, that's, that's the other extreme. We don't want that. But that's that curious thing in the middle. Now, the most difficult thing is to hold to the middle. It's like walking a tightrope. And that's why the path of Buddhism is called the razor's edge. Because you see what happened. When this, all this kind of work in the course of history became fashionable, people began to affect these styles. For example, when Seshu, the great master ink painter, worked, he would sometimes take a handful of straw and paint with that instead of a brush in order to get the sort of rough effect that he wanted. But later on there came people who could take an ordinary paintbrush and so exactly ink that brush that it would give precisely the messy effect that they had in mind. They would also be able to ink a brush in such a way, and this is terribly decadent, they could dab grapes on a vine and have dark ink where the shadow was supposed to be. And no ink at all where the highlight was supposed to be. That's when they started getting mixed up with Western ideas about shadows and perspective. They didn't have that earlier. But they were so skilled in the handling of, of ink that they would do this sort of thing and they would imitate, you see, all the, the uh, so-called uh, rough natural effects of the great Zen artists. And so today in Japan, a younger generation of artists has decided it's time to break all that up. If we imagine, for example, haiku parties, the writing of haiku poetry, Basho, who was the great 17th century master of haiku, said, get a three-foot child to write haiku. Because they are the sort of direct, guileless things that children would say. But now there are magazines devoted to haiku poetry, where in every issue there will be 10,000 haikus. <laughs> written by people all over the country, and they get so stilted and so affected that one wish one had never heard of haiku. The same thing is starting over here. And uh, you should see the entries we get in these haiku competitions that uh, Japan Airlines and other people sponsor. But it all after a while becomes dated, stilted, and so somewhere again the new thing has to break out, which is always coming up. But there's no formula, you see, for fixing it so that you can do it again and again and again because the moment you start doing it again and again and again, it isn't it anymore. The, the, the real thing has escaped. Do you remember some time ago there was a fashion for having wrought iron fish, just the outline of the fish. Some artist originally, you know, put this fish together and it looked great. But then you suddenly found them in every gift shop and dime store, and they look perfectly terrible. <laughs> so this is the mysterious thing. Well, not only in the arts, but in lifestyles, in everything, when you start saying, what is the technique for getting this thing? And people say, well, this is it. It's gone. Same in education. Same in music. 
The moment you start teaching something, what, do you, what question are you asking? How could we, is there some method whereby in our schools we could produce from the music department every graduation ceremony three musicians of the statue of Bach or Mozart? Now, if we knew how to do that, that knowledge would prevent us from being surprised by the work of these people. Because we would know how it's done. And when you know how something is done, it doesn't surprise you. That's why there's a Zen poem which says, if you ask where the flowers come from, even the God of Spring doesn't know. Certainly the God of Spring would be supposed to know where the flowers come from. But the truth of the matter is he doesn't. And so in the same way, uh, if you ask the Lord God, how do you create the universe? He said, I have no special method. <laughs> and this, uh, this is known in Zen as a very difficult, this is the most difficult virtue to attain. So many of these things begin with mu. Buji. <laughs> Buji. It means nothing special. <laughs> it means no business. No artificiality. In American current, real cool. <laughs> uh, so, buji is where something doesn't stand out like a sore thumb. But it is absolutely different from being modest. A buji person may be immodest in the sense that if he knows he can do something well, he just says he can. He doesn't go at all sorts of blushing violet techniques. Buji, you see, is this mysterious quality of nothing special, no special method. Because if there is, let me repeat, if we do know the method and we know it infallibly, it ceases to be interesting. There are no surprises left. And the moment the element of surprise has gone, the, the zest of life has gone. That, you see, is why it's very difficult to teach Zen to yourself. Because you can't easily surprise yourself. The essence, you see, of this kind of spontaneity is response to a surprise. So the master, you don't know what he's going to do, and he surprises you. It's like trying to cure hiccups. Very difficult to cure yourself, because when you pat yourself on the back, you know when you're going to do it. So you're all ready for it. When somebody else comes up and slams you on the back, then that's a surprise. And what you needed was a surprise. Or it's like uh, jokes. What makes you laugh about a joke is the element of surprise in it. That's why jokes aren't funny after they've been explained. <laughs> so in the same way, all these Zen stories, if explained, have no effect. They're intended to produce what I would call metaphysical laughter. But this has to be a surprise. And so as to be surprised, 
Well, there's no way of premeditating it. So you see, if you read, for example, there's a book out here called Zen by Eugen Herigl, who studied archery. Many of you probably read this book. He had to learn to pull the bowstring in the manner of the Japanese archer and let it go, but not on purpose. He had to let it go without thinking first, I'll let it go, and then let go. He had to let it go, not on purpose. Now, that really bugged Herigal. How do you do something not on purpose? Especially if you're aiming at a target. Well, the whole point is, if you think before you shoot, it's too late. The target's moved. That's why we have a thing like beginner's luck. You see, if you simply point at something like that, if your finger was a gun, I would probably have hit the light switch. And so you get a person who's naive about a gun, who pick a gun up and bang, and, and the thing will, be, will drop dead. <laughs> I'll never forget the first time I ever used a slingshot. This friend of mine was with me, and he was aiming away and not missing, and I just picked it up, and ping, and it hit. But I couldn't do it again. <laughs> uh, it, it, you get a certain naturalness there. So, there was a master by the name of uh, Ikkyu, who was a great leg puller. And he had in front of his house a very gnarled pine tree. One of those things that's contorted, and they love this kind of thing. And he put a notice up by it, and said, I, Ikkyu, will pay 100 yen, which was a fair amount of money in those days, to anyone who can see this tree straight. Well, soon, there was a whole crowd of people around that tree, lying on the ground and <laughs> twisting their necks and looking at it from all sorts of angles. And there was absolutely no way of seeing the tree with a straight trunk. But Iq had a friend who was a priest of another sect, and a smart boy went over to see this friend and said, uh, what about this Mr. Iq's tree? Oh, said the other priest, it's perfectly simple. He said, you go and tell him the answer to seeing the tree straight is to look straight at it. <laughs> so this man went over to Ikkyu and said, I claim the reward. He said, you look straight at it. And Ikkyu looked at him in a funny way and said, he was forked out the hundred yen and gave it to him. He said, I think you've been talking to Rosan down the street. <laughs> <laughs> now, in that way, you see, just look straight at it. In other words, here's the bowstring, let go of it. Don't all this thimble fambling, mimble mambling, jumble humble about uh, the right technique of letting go of it. Let go of it, damn it. Uh, but that's very difficult. It's as if I would say to you now, everybody, let's be unselfconscious. <laughs> and so finally, in desperation, you at last learn to let go of the thing. Uh, which was what you were supposed to do all the time. And then, one is as again as a child. This is original innocence. So, this is the meaning of the person who was asked, 
what do you do here in this Zen institution? He said, we eat when hungry and we sleep when tired. But he said, that's being just like everybody else. They all do that. He said, they do not. When they eat, they don't eat. But they think of all sorts of extraneous matters. When they're tired, they don't sleep. They dream all kinds of dreams. It has been well said that Buddhism is Hinduism stripped for export. You see, Hinduism is a way of life that goes far, far beyond what we in the West call religion. It involves cookery, everyday family life, house building, uh, just everything. It's the whole Hindu way of life. And so you can't export it, just as you can't export Shinto from Japan. It belongs to the soil and the culture. But there are, are essential elements in it that can be transmitted outside the culture of India. And Buddhism was one of the ways of doing just that. So one might say simply this to try and sum up what Buddhism is about. The word Buddha is derived from the root Bud in Sanskrit, B-U-D-H, which means to be awake. So the Buddha is the, the awakened man, the man who woke up. What does he wake up from? Obviously a dream. And what kind of a dream is this? Well, uh, I would call it uh, a state of hypnosis. And this state of hypnosis, although I'm using hypnosis in a rather archaic sense of the word, is a state of being entranced, spellbound, fascinated, and this is called, in Sanskrit, avidya. A-V-I-D-Y-A. Vidya is knowledge in Sanskrit. And it is the root from which we get videre in Latin, to see, and so vision in English. So putting the A in front of it means non. Avidya, not seeing. Ignorance, ignorance. Where uh, you see, but you ignore. Everything that you're not looking at. When you put the beak of a chicken on a white chalk line, and the chicken is fascinated with that and can't get away from the chalk line, that's avidya. So in the same way, our beaks were put on a chalk line. When we were hypnotized into the notion of attending to life by conscious attention alone, by the spotlight to the exclusion of the floodlight. And so we began to imagine that we were separate individuals. What is called in Buddhism, Sakaya Drishti, the view of separateness. And a Buddha is one who has overcome that. He is awakened from that illusion, from that state of hypnosis, and he knows that uh, well I can't put what he knows in any positive terms 
This is the special thing about Buddhism. Everything in Buddhism sounds negative. Let's put it this way. Let's suppose uh, you engage yourself in a, in a uh, relationship with the Buddha. Or with one... I mean, there are hundreds of Buddhas. The one we call Gotama is just the historical Buddha that everybody knows about. But one Buddha leads to another because as a result of his relationships with people, he turns them into Buddhas too, awakened people. Now, you meet one of these people, and he's going to give you a rough time. But one, one of the, the Buddhas running around these days is Krishnamurti. And Krishnamurti uh, absolutely destroys everybody's religion. He came, why do you believe this? Why are you hanging on to that? Why do you want to insist that this idea is so? See? And he shows you that all your fixed formulations, all the ideas to which you cling, are spurious. And then you suddenly get into a kind of vertigo, dizziness, that you feel suddenly that you're no longer standing on the firm ground, but that the universe has suddenly turned into water, or worse, air, or worse still, empty space. There's nothing to hold on to. Now, you see, uh, often when one discusses religion with people, they say, well, I, I need a religion because I need something to hold on to. Well, that's the way not to use a religion. Because if you use religion as something to hold on to, your religion is an expression of unfaith. Faith is where you let go, not where you hold on. When the cat falls off the tree, the cat relaxes, you see. And so the cat lands with a soft thud and doesn't get hurt because the cat has faith. But if the cat in midair were suddenly to grab itself with all four feet and, and tighten up, you see, it'd be hurt. And that's what people do when they say, Rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. They want something to hold on to, you see. And that is unfaith. So the method of Buddhism... It's called the Dharma. It doesn't mean the law, it means the method. The method is to knock the stuffing out of you. To take away everything to which you cling. To cleanse you completely of all beliefs, all ideas, all concepts of what life is about. So that you are completely let go. So Buddhism has no doctrines at all that you have to believe in. I don't care what background you come from, whether you're a, a Roman Catholic or at one extreme or a logical positivist at the other. Both are clinging to something. You see? And so the method of Buddhism is to knock out the underpinnings and say, well, we just... Not only do we not believe in anything, we don't even believe in not believing in anything. You know, you crawl into a hole and pull the hole in after you. But in this case, you do the exact opposite of that. That's a defensive move, to crawl into a hole. In this way, you crawl into great space and then pull the space out after you. <laughs> and uh, to go through this is pretty, pretty rough because you can do it on what seems at first to be a merely intellectual level. So you can engage a group of people in the discussion and you can start, whenever they propose an idea that is their sort of guiding principle of life, you demolish it. Show that it doesn't hold water. 
and step by step you unearth by talking with them what are the fundamental ideas they're operating on. Everybody is. Everybody is a philosopher. Everybody has metaphysics, although they may not know what it is, so they've never examined it. But by this method you bring it out, and you demolish it. And this suddenly, what seemed like a very nice intellectual discussion, turns into sheer murder. Uh, people get really anxious. They develop all the trembles and the symptoms of extreme anxiety. And so they finally say to the guru, the teacher, well, heaven's sakes, what do you believe in? He says, I'm not proposing anything. I didn't set anything up. Well, how do you navigate? How do you, how do you exist? This is what's the problem. Because you see, uh, what we're moving from, as I suggested a moment ago, we're moving from a state of affairs where we're accustomed to navigation on land to a state of affairs where we're in the water. And this is very critical for today because the impact of modern science on Western culture has been very similar to this. In, say, in Christianity, we sing hymns like how firm a foundation and rock of ages, Ein Fester Burg, a mighty fortress is our God. Uh, we have something to stand on. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord, you know. And it's this firm thing. All right, suddenly all that disappears or becomes implausible. And we find ourselves swimming or sinking. Now, when you find that you're living in the midst of the universe of relativity, well, there's nothing you could hold on to. You've got to learn how to swim. And to swim, you've got to relax and stop, stop grabbing. So this is what Buddhism does. When it says it's the art of let go of non-attachment, non-attachment doesn't mean that you uh, lose your appetite for dinner. It means simply that you stop grabbing you get rid of stickiness. Stickiness in the sense of, for example, when a wheel has a, an, an axle that's too tight and it sticks. You want to loosen it up a bit. You don't want it too loose. You don't want it floppy. Like a lot of people, when you tell them to, to relax, they become like a limp rag. It's not relaxing. Relaxing is having still tone. But um, it's a certain, it's a middle way. So this is what this is entirely what Buddhism is about. It's about learning, uh, for example, if I may put it in a vivid way, when you were born, you were kicked off a precipice. And you're, you're, there's nothing that can stop you falling. And although there are a lot of rocks falling with you, with trees growing on them and all sorts of things like that, you can cling to one of those rocks, if you like, as it goes down with you for safety. But it's not safe. Nothing is safe. Everything is falling apart. Everything is in, in a state of change. And uh, there's no way of stopping it. And when you are really resigned to that, when you really accept that, then there's nothing left to be afraid of. And when there's nothing left to be afraid of, and you've given everything up, and uh, you know that uh, even, you know, a lot of people in religion cling to suffering because they know they are right as long as they hurt. 
Oh, I bless the good Lord for my boils, for my mental and bodily pains. <laughs> for without them my faith all congeals, and I am doomed to hell's ne'er-ending flames. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people who know that they're right so long as they suffer. But that's an illusion too. Even suffering offers no security. Even suicide offers no security in Buddhism, you see. There is no security at all. You simply have to face this fact that everything is in flux and go, 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 go with it. And so the question then is simply how to convince people of this if anybody wants to be convinced. You know, it's not the sort of thing you shove down people's throats. You don't convert them to this because if they don't want to be converted, they won't let go. So Buddhism therefore involves a very special relationship between the questioner and the person to whom the question is addressed, the pupil and the teacher. And now then, Buddhism came to China as early as 60 AD, but didn't at that time make a very great impression. It was not until about the year 400 that a very great Sanskrit scholar by the name of Kumarajiva came and started teaching Chinese scholars Sanskrit. And they worked with him to translate Sanskrit into Chinese. And they translated the Buddhist scriptures. They didn't, of course, do them all at that time because the Buddhist scriptures occupy about as many, as much space as the Encyclopedia Britannica. In fact, a little more. The Indians are great talkers. Well, anyway, uh, they found that when they translate this into Chinese, you had to find equivalent Chinese words for the Sanskrit ideas, and they found these from the, from the Taoist philosophy. Well, slowly then, Indian attitudes began to be modified by Chinese attitudes because the Chinese read into these translations Taoist meanings, so things got a little altered. Now here came the alteration that is crucial. First of all, in Indian Buddhism there's very little humor. But Chinese uh, life is full of humor. The greatest philosopher of China, Zhuangzi, you know, is the only philosopher who is, in, I think, in the whole world, who is profoundly humorous. There's a book in the um, modern library published by Random House called The Wisdom of Lao Tzu. And uh, this is translated by Lin Yutang. And he includes, along with the translation of Lao Tzu, huge sections of Zhuang Tzu. And this is absolutely fascinating because of the humor of it. Indian Buddhism had very little humor. Some, yes, but very little. Next, it was all tied up with celibacy, which to the Chinese was absolutely incomprehensible. Because in Chinese civilization is rigged around the family to a far greater extent than ours is, which is saying something. And... Uh, they could, just couldn't see uh, any point or any wisdom 
in celibacy. When Buddhism came to China, it still retained a certain element of celibacy. But for different reasons than, than Hindu. The Chinese way of celibacy is not that sex is naughty, but it's terribly convenient not to have a wife. <laughs> In other words, the ideal of, of the uninvolved life uh, has a certain appeal. But they could never, never get through into their heads the notion that uh, sexual desire was bad which plays, has always played a fairly strong role in Hindu thinking. Not in the same way as it has in the West. They don't have a, the Hindus don't have a guilt take on it. But they think that it, it, it dissipates your spiritual energies. And you see, the, the, in, in yoga, they envisage the idea that at the base of the spine, there is what is called the kundalini. The, 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 the serpent power or the, the force of psychic energy and so long as it remains at the base of the spine this force is dissipated in sexuality now yoga is to suck this thing up the spine and get it into the head and so then you withdraw from the manifestation of this energy or the dissipation of it in sexuality and uh, it's put on a higher level only uh which end is up. Uh, you can do it the other way too. They have what's called the right-hand way of doing it and the left-hand way of doing it. I'm not going to go into that now. But the Chinese didn't see it that way. They couldn't see that it was a dissipation of energy. Uh, so... What they wanted to aim at was a way of living Buddhism and being awake but at the same time remaining active in the ordinary life of the world. It's what's called in their phraseology being king on the outside and a sage on the inside. Managing practical affairs completely involved in whatever life is but at the same time, inwardly, living on top of the mountain, being cloud-hidden whereabouts unknown. So, Chinese Zen is the preeminent expression of this, because it is the mixture of Indian Buddhism and Chinese Taoism, plus a certain Confucian practicality. Zen developed out of the work of Kumarajiva, came into China, as I said, for 400 or a little before. He had two disciples who began to work on Buddhism from a Taoist point of view. And they were actually the, the originators of Zen. Then apparently about uh, shortly before 500, as the dates now check out, another Indian came to China whose name was Bodhidharma. And Bodhidharma was the person who touched off Zen as a specific movement. Bodhidharma had a pupil by the name of um, Eka, 
Hueka in Chinese. Eka is Japanese pronunciation, like Zen is the Japanese pronunciation of the Chinese Chun. And uh, the story is that when Eka came to Bodhidharma, Bodhidharma refused to accept him as a student. All Zen masters do this. They reject you. And this stimulates you, you see, to come back stronger. I mean, if you're going to learn at all. And Eikar came back stronger and stronger and stronger, and Bodhidharma resisted him stronger and stronger. And finally, he cut off his left arm and presented it to Bodhidharma. and said, look, here's my left arm given to you as a token that nothing in the world matters to me except to find out what you're all about. All right, he said, what do you want to know? Eikar said, I have no peace of mind. Please pacify my mind. In Chinese, mind is um, this word pronounced shin. And shin is here. Shin is the heart mind. It's the psychic center. And so Bodhidharma said, bring out your shin here before me and I will pacify it. Ekar said, when I look for it, I can't find it. Bodhidharma said, then it's pacified. And Ekar immediately understood what all the thing was about. That's the experience called Satori in Japanese. Wu in Chinese, uh, Mandarin, and in the Cantonese dialect. <coughs> <laughs> What we call in our modern psychological jargon the aha phenomenon. Uh, the aha phenomenon. Aha! Now I see. Well, now, um, what was all this? This Zen is uh, a translation of the Sanskrit word jhana. And so this is being pronounced Chan in Chinese and Zen in Japanese is unfortunately untranslatable in English. It designates a certain state of consciousness that is sometimes called meditation, but that won't do at all. Contemplation isn't really the point. Chinese have a different word for contemplation. And uh, sometimes one-pointedness of mind. I would prefer to translate this word with the notion of total presence of mind. When we say a person is crazy, we often say they're not all there. Now go to the opposite of that and visualize a person who is completely there or who is completely here. A person who lives totally and absolutely now. That doesn't mean he's incapable of thinking about the past or the future because thoughts about the past and about the future are included in the present. You have them now. But imagine the kind of person who is not distracted, who when he talks to you, it really gives you his whole being. 
who doesn't, as it were, look over your shoulder and wander after something else. Somebody who, first of all, he's completely here, and he's so much here that you can't phase him. Now, this idea of phasing is crucial in Zen. You see, I referred a moment ago to attachment, that Buddhism is living free from attachments. And I made the point that this is not abandoning a sense of a good appetite for dinner, but it's stopping sticking. In psychological jargon, you don't block. A mind of no hesitation, it's sometimes called. In Chinese, the phrase mo zhe chu is used of going straight ahead. So supposing somebody walks up to you on the street and says, are you saved? Now, most of us uh, who are intelligent people feel embarrassed by such a question. You know, what's this wretched Salvation Army person or Jehovah's Witness doing asking me whether I'm saved or not? And we're all a little bit, you know, what do you do with a nut like that? So, but as in Zen, this is a, a perfect moment to respond, see? To the most embarrassing question, are you saved? But Zen comes back in a very funny way. Uh, in Zen, uh, one doesn't give uh, philosophical answers to a question like that. You give practical answers. I had a boiled egg this morning. <laughs> <laughs> Because whenever you are asked about matters sacred, theoretical and philosophical, you answer in terms of things earthy and practical. But then on the other hand, when you are asked about things earthy and practical, you answer in terms of things religious and philosophical. <laughs> Is dinner ready? You know? Who's asking this question? <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> So, this is then the flavor of Zen, is, you know, a Bodhidharma is supposed to have meditated so long that his legs fell off. And he's usually drawn this way, something like this anyway. It looks like a shmoo. <laughs> but uh, in Japan, you buy these toys that are darumas. And they are so weighted in here that you can never knock them over. You can bat it on the floor, bat it this way, bat it that way, but it always comes up again. And so the poem says, seven times down, eight times up, such is life. So... Uh, this is the, the, the principle of not being phased, not being attached. So to play the game, you can't phase me. Now, this is uh, very important in the art of lifemanship. <laughs> Fundamental gamesmanship. Because you see, when the Zen monks moved into Kyoto, uh, they took over the best part of town. <coughs> Simply fantastic how this happened. The beautiful hills were occupied by the brigands who later became the Japanese nobility. 
the great daimyos. These were the toughest characters. And the Zen monks played a game with them, which was that, you know, you possess all these lands and you're powerful and so on, but so what? It's all falling apart. Then what will you do? Well, they said, that's too bad. We don't know. And the Zen monks said, no. You, know, you haven't got the hang of the thing, you see. So they found that they couldn't terrify Zen monks. That uh, they played all sorts of tricks, but the Zen monks were better masters at it. See, supposing you say to somebody, uh, look, I'm not afraid of you. You can do anything you like. You can kill me or anything at all. But if I go and kill the fellow who says this, I'll never find out whether he was afraid or not. <laughs> so they outfaced these people and said, you did, you, we have a secret, you see, that you don't have. And we'll teach your your uh, servitors to be great warriors because they'll learn the secret too and they won't be afraid of anything. And this is what they did. And so the daimyos, uh, the noblemen, uh, built great monasteries for these Zen masters and monks on their best land. The finest artists of Japan made gold leaf screens uh, for almost every room in the place. And although nobody owns anything individually, the community owns it collectively with the protection of the daimyos. And they had a tremendous scene going. <laughs> now, to us, that sounds extremely weird, even immoral. You don't expect religious people to do things like that. No, I know you don't, uh, if, if, if the religious people are self-righteous and have no humor. But these people didn't go around pretending that they were specially good. They didn't dupe themselves. They were people who understood what human nature is. That in every one of us there is an element of irreducible rascality. In Jewish theology this is called the Yetzahara. Uh, Y-E-Z-E-R-H-A-R-A. -E -E the Yetzahara. The element of irreducible rascality which was created by God. Because God has one too. And uh, that's why when you are really affectionate with somebody else, when, for example, men, I don't know what women do in their private lives between each other, but men, uh, as we all know, say to someone they're very fond of, why, you old bastard, you know? Uh, just like that, you know? There's a certain way of saying to a person, uh, there's a certain glint of recognition. And so there's a Zen poem which says, when two Zen masters meet each other on the road, they need no introduction. When a thief meets a thief, they recognize each other instantly. <laughs> and this goes back, you see, again, into the heart of Chinese philosophy. That human nature is considered to be basically good. And even the rascally elements of it are good. They are the sort of salt in the human stew. There has to be this little thing that human passions and that the, the natural uh, contentiousness and greed or whatever that we have is an essential element in our makeup. And that when people lose sight of that, they go mad. Nothing, for example, is more dangerous than a saint. 
that is to say an unconscious saint, who thinks that he is right, and who endeavors to live an absolutely pure life, and to eliminate all selfish thoughts, somebody who undertakes that task is going to be a menace to all around, because he loses his humor, he loses his real humility, which is knowing that after all, since we're humans, we have certain needs, we are, uh, need to eat, we need uh, sex, we need this, that, and the other. And this, this sort of has a, a, a quality of humor to it. And uh, so this is why in Zen art, the sages are always drawn to look a little bit like bums. You know that putai, or hote as he's called, what's called the laughing Buddha, the fat Buddha with an immense belly, uh, and carrying around an enormous bag of rubbish, into which he indiscriminately puts anything he finds around and then gives it away to children. This is the sort of uh, type which the Chinese call the old rogue. And the old rogue, as a type of the poet, sage, monk and scholar, you see, is greatly admired. He's the non-violent brigand. The rolling stone, the free man. Or in our words, the joker. The joker, you see, is the card that can be, play any role in the pack. So then, Zen developed in China after Bodhidharma's time and came to a, a sort of golden age in the Tang and Sung dynasties. The golden age of Zen lies between 713 AD and approximately 1100, 1200, 11 to 1200. That's the great creative period in which all the marvelous masters emerged and during which Zen exercised a profound influence on the development of Chinese poetry and painting, calligraphy and scholarship. Then, between 11 and 1200, uh, it shifted to Japan and uh, underwent a new development rather different in quality and in tone. And after it had done that for some curious reason, which is a very complicated historical question, it slowly faded away in China. So that as we find it today, it is principally a Japanese phenomenon. And it is slowly fading in Japan and slowly growing in the West. It's a very funny thing. Now then... Let me indicate what Zen training, what its method is. How does it work? I said before, what is involved is a dialogue, an interchange between two people. One who's defined himself as a student and has therefore defined the other as the teacher. There is no teacher until a student arrives, no problem until a question is raised. 
So students create teachers. If you ask a question, you get 30 blows with a stick. If you don't ask a question, you get 30 blows with a stick. Because you simply, you put yourself in statu pupillari. You've defined yourself as having a problem. Now, nobody really has a problem. But the maya, the game of life is to pretend that you do. Going back to fundamental Hinduism, the Godhead, or the self, pretends it's all of us. And so gets lost, and so has a ball. And dreams all this goings on. So, uh, when you're on your way out from the dream, it suddenly occurs to you that you have a problem. Life is suffering. Uh, you would like to get out of this. So, one such student went to a Zen master and he said, we have to dress and eat every day. And how do we get out of all that? In other words, you might ask the question in this way. We have to work, get up Monday morning, go to the office, do all this routine, sell something and so on. How do we get out of the rat race? So we have to dress and eat every day. And how do we get rid of all that? And the master said, we dress, we eat. The student said, I don't understand. He replied, if you don't understand, put on your clothes and eat your food. No, this is the kind of dialogue so characteristic of Zen. So the position is this. The master, on being approached by a student about the problem of life, says, I have nothing to teach you. I'm a Zen master. I have nothing to say. Zen is not words. And furthermore, everything is perfectly clear. There was a Confucian scholar who went to a Zen master and said, what is your secret teaching? And he replied, there is a saying in your own teacher Confucius which explains it all. Don't you remember when Confucius said to his disciples, do you suppose that I'm concealing something from you? I've held nothing back. And the scholar didn't get this. So a few days later they were walking together in the mountains and they passed the wild laurel bush. And the Zen master said to the Confucian scholar, do you smell it? He said, yes. He said, you see, I'm holding nothing back. So the position of the Zen master is, there is nothing to tell you. There is no, we, we're not offering you any panacea, any solution, any doctrine, any big, big goody uh, to the problem of life. Because the problem is an illusion. Well, then the student under these circumstances thinks, well, this is some sort of a come on. Um, he's testing my sincerity. And of course, the nothing which he has to teach is the, the mystery of the great void. See, he doesn't, he doesn't take it as meaning just plain old ordinary nothing, but the great void. And so, uh, he persists. And the teacher makes him persist until he gets way out on a limb. He has to persist so much that he practically dedicates his life, saying, uh, just as the way uh, Hueka symbolically cut off his arm. The student is put in the position of dedicating his life to solving this thing and getting what that teacher has. 
And of course, there wasn't anything all along. But he's been put in that position. So, uh, then, uh, once he's in statu pupillari, uh, once he becomes a student, he's put through all kinds of hoops. They make him learn to meditate, to sit cross-legged, practice zazen, and then they also add to the trouble by asking impossible questions, which are called koan. And these questions are palpably absurd. What they are saying, essentially, uh, at least the elementary koans are all concerned with this, are requests for behavior on the part of the student that will be perfectly genuine. In other words, show me who you are. Now, wait a minute, I don't want to see uh, any social definition of you. I don't want to know your name, your address, who your parents were. I want to see the absolutely authentic you. It's like existentialists talk about authentic being. Or uh, it might be in the same way a confessor, father confessor in a Christian sense could say. Now, give me a really good confession. What is the thing, bad, bad thing you've really done? And you confess to him adulteries and murders and thefts and sacrilege and blasphemies and cussing and so on. And he says, oh, no, 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 come off it. Those are only trivial sins. Come on now, what is the really awful thing you've done? I don't know, what, me? (laughs) This is the backwards way of doing exactly the same thing as Zen Master is doing. Saying, who are you really? Are you anybody? Is anybody home? Have you got anything? And they they, they do things like uh, making you shout. See, this this word is a very important word in Zen. Uh, Nothing. Move. It's represented by the empty circle. The word moo in Japanese. So they say, now say it. Say moo. Moo! You know, with all your, your guts going into it. They say, no, no, no. You, you don't know how to say that. Come on, that's feeble. That's nothing. Let's really say it. They have every kind of trick like that. To show you that the more you make an effort to be genuine, the more of a fool you become. And they tie you up in knots until you're desperate. There was a, an American Zen student who uh, was on a Fulbright and um, I gave him a year to study Zen. And he got, started to panic because he had only a month to go and he hadn't realized it. And he knew he had to and he went to the Zen master and said, damn it, he said, look, uh, I've, got, I've only got a month left. And the master said, all right, we'll have what we call Ossession. Ossession is an intense uh, meditation practice where you only sleep three hours a night sort of thing and you meditate all the rest of the time. Let's go. Let's really do it. Do it. Do it. Do it. And every day, three times, you come to me and present the answer to your Zen problem, your koan. And it got worse and it got worse and it got worse and he got more and more desperate. That here was this Fulbright going to end and he wouldn't know what Zen was all about. Well, practically on the last day, he suddenly saw there was nothing to see. You know, 
it's all right the way it is. And this tremendous illumination, this load off his head, was of course what the master was trying to make him do. And now in the ordinary way, if you're not on a Fulbright, and you, uh, <laughs> you can stay around further in Japan, the master will then play a trick on you. You'll say, now that's wonderful. You got your foot in at the gate. You saw, you realize there's nothing to realize. You realize the void. There's nothing to cling to, you see. There are no, no barriers, no blocks in any direction. It's all transparent. But that is just the beginning. And many, many, it's all a necessity now for you to discipline yourself much harder, to make great efforts, really to get through. So, <laughs> what are you going to do about that? Uh, the student may say, well, I don't know. I've had enough. I think I've realized what it's all about. And he goes away. Sometime later, he begins to worry. Because, you see, the great emotional relief of this insight begins to wear off. And life begins to look ordinary again. And then he said, maybe I did miss something. That was a very good master I went to. I better go back. So back he goes. And the teacher comes on very, very tough. And says, you, no, you're no good. You didn't stick with it. Why should I take you back? Oh, Master, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize I was young and inexperienced, and I, now I've come to my senses. So the teacher finally says, All right, all right, all right, you're on probation. <laughs> oh, again, he starts another koan. And this one comes in from a completely different point of view. And he's got others that come from this way, and from this way, and from this way, and from this way. And the point is always. So long as I can beguile you, as a teacher, into thinking there's something you can get, you need to study with me. When I can no longer fool you into thinking that there's something to get out of life, you'll know that you're alive. You don't get something out of it, you're it. But so long as you can be phased and you can be taken in by the teacher... You need a teacher. So in the end, when the student no longer needs a teacher, and he sees that this old boy has fooled him the whole way through, he says, at the same time, profound respect, and you wonderful rascal. <laughs> There's a very strange thing in the... Uh, I've, poked around a good deal lately in Japan among American Zen students to find out what's going on. And they tell me that um, the initial come-on of a Zen master is very tough and very authoritarian and paternalistic. But as you move in, he turns into your older brother and uh, is a person you feel going right along with you, beside you, uh, helping you in this thing, full of friendship and compassion and everything. But occasionally he will suddenly turn and uh, bring on the authoritarian stuff. But they do it in a very strange way. There was a Zen master who on a Saturday morning 
when he should have been woken up uh, at 8 o'clock, was woken up at 7, or whatever the time was. Uh, no, he should have been... He should have been woken up at 8 on Saturdays and 7 on weekdays. So this was a Saturday, and his uh, attendant monk came and woke him up at 8. He was immediately looked at the clock and was absolutely furious that he'd been woken up an hour late because he didn't know it was Saturday. So he struck out at this monk in a rage. And the monk said, Master, but it's Saturday. He said, oh. (laughs) Anger disappeared, absolutely serene, no apologies. So you see the nature of this game, which is the Zen game. And I seem to have given away the show to you. I've told you all the inside mechanics of it. But you would discover that if you tangle with a Zen master and you think you know from what I told you what are the mechanics of it, and you stuck your neck out to put yourself in the position of being an inquirer, Everything I had told you would be useless. He would outwit you completely. That's what consists in being a master. He's not doing it because he wants to be superior and to put down other human beings. He's doing it out of great compassion because he feels he knows something which uh, if you could find out you would... uh, just be so happy. And we want to give it to everybody else. But you can't give it away because everybody's got it. What you've got to make them do is to see that they have it and that you don't give it to them. And that's the most difficult task. I realize that every professional group has a special concern Uh, when they attend such a seminar as this, with the practical application to their specific jobs of the ideas that are being discussed. And uh, the question has been put to me very concretely, that uh, if I'm discussing the human game, and uh, promulgating some sort of philosophy, of life as play, how will you get this across to your clients, your students, your patients, etc., however you name them? And I want to assure you that this is the one subject on earth that you should not be concerned with. Now, I very often talk, I talk to all sorts of groups, And uh, in these groups, there are invariably parents, and they hear about this sort of point of view, and they want to know how to apply it to their children, as if children were certain things that you apply something to. Children are very canny, and the moment you start applying a method to them, they're aware that something's afoot. And the only way to do anything at all with children is to be natural, to be you, But there's no way of doing that, because the moment you know you're being natural, you're not. Uh, If you, however, are a person fascinated with something, deeply interested in anything at all, it doesn't matter what the devil it is, 
a child is uh, intrigued, catches the infection of it from you by osmosis. And so in exactly the same way, if you are uh, deeply absorbed in life, you can commit psychotherapy without any technique at all. Only uh, there, there are rituals which bring you into contact with people. You know, they have to make an appointment and they have a problem and they want to discuss it with you. Uh, and so uh, that has to be tolerated. But beyond that, what they want to, re they really want to meet is a person whose own life is really satisfactory to him or her rather than a person who is a professional in setting other people's lives right. There's no way of doing that. And so, the thing that I, I, I want to talk to you very seriously about, them, or very sincerely, <laughs> about certain things that seem to me important in the life of anybody in your position, and certain things that are ordinarily quite out of the bounds of psychiatrists and psychologists' discussions. Speaking quite frankly, the thing that oppresses me in my constant contact with psychotherapeutic circles is the... Um, amazing superficiality of it all. You know, let's be psychologists and let's not venture any deeper than that. Let's um, be quite clear that we are working with something empirical, something matter-of-fact, and let's not get anything really spooky mixed up with this. Because after all, uh, we are, as I uh, explained earlier, we are still under the influence of the 19th century mythology of the world. And this has become a tremendously important thing for all those branches of the academic profession that want to be scientific and aren't. Now, science is something is a discipline possible only in very, very special situations. <coughs> the nature of science is the accurate description, first of all. And accurate description is possible only when the subject matter to be described is very carefully limited and restricted. In other words, in situations where all the important factors are measurable. And in order, say, to have a test tube containing certain chemicals, which need to be measured with extreme accuracy, you've got to isolate this test tube from the external world. 
If the mixture is in, in any way unstable, a passing truck might damage things, a subtle alteration of temperature, when the sun comes out, might upset something. And so more and more you have to isolate your specimen in an influence-proofed room. And that's a very expensive and a very difficult thing to construct. But once you've done it, when you've got your all the variables in the situation are known and measurable, you can have some approximation to a truly scientific experiment. <clears throat> to pretend to be able to do this in human relations is absurd. Your variables are infinite. You've no real idea what they are. But that is not to say, in any sense whatsoever, that therapy cannot be performed. And that you, as psychologists consulting schools, cannot do your jobs. I only ask of you, don't sail under false pretenses. Don't uh, assume the mask of science. Don't aspire to the status of being scientists in the sense that a physicist or a chemist or a mathematician can be scientists with their rigorous precision and their elimination of variables. You, if you are successful, must be artists. And an artist is a person who performs certain things skillfully but doesn't really know how he does it. You learn art by methods that you don't know how you learn. You can't describe. Because your brain is capable of absorbing all kinds of information that is much too subtle to be translated into words. You see, let's take, we're doing an enormous, in the academic world today, we're doing an enormous number of studies on creativity. How do we get creative people? Couldn't we somehow pin this down and try and analyze and specify the factors which lead to creativity in engineering, in inventive work, in psychology, anything you want? Well, it's fun doing that. It's all right to analyze creativity and see if you can make any sense of it, but you won't. But that doesn't deny the fact that creativity exists and can indeed be stimulated. Creative people can stimulate creativity in others by osmosis, by exposure. And so as a form of creativity, also the power of psychotherapy can be learned provided you do not pretend it is a science and that there is a specific method for learning it. It can be learned provided you expose yourself to a therapeutic person. You don't know, do you, how you digest vitamins. You don't, when you take these pills has to know the precise steps by which they are turned into your life energies. Your body knows how to do it. But that's not a, a process analyzable into words and figures. So in exactly the same way, 
through certain kinds of human contact with people who have the gift of therapy, you can absorb their wisdom like you absorb the virtues and vitamins. But don't be anxious about it and try to define the whole thing. I remember when I was a little boy, I once thought the idea that I would write a book which would pass down all knowledge to a subsequent civilization that would know nothing about us. And the first thing I had to do was to write down how the letters of our alphabet were pronounced. Figure that one out. Now, I made a way of saying how A was pronounced, but I had to use A to show how A was pronounced. And that is the sense, that is an epitome of the problem that we have. You can't say in words how words are used. And so, do you know a game called Vish? What you do is everybody has a standard web, uh, college dictionary, Webster's College Dictionary. You sit around a table and then there's a hat and you pull out, somebody pulls out a word. And everybody looks the word up. Then they write down on a pad the key words and the definition of that word. And then they start looking them up. And the first person who gets back to the original word calls out Vish, short for vicious circle. And he wins the round. And the referee, there's always a referee, he decides whether you worked fairly, whether you didn't take an illegitimate shortcut. You know, like looking up and or something like that in the definition. You had to look up a key word. Because so long as a dictionary doesn't include pictures, all it does is define words in terms of words. It never makes the bridge between words and the physical universe, which Korzybski so delightfully called the unspeakable world. So fascinating. Unspeakable also means disreputable. The world that is not academically respectable. Do you know that in recent controversy at Harvard about the experiments with psychedelic drugs, some member of the Department of Social Relations actually said, nothing is, no knowledge is academically respectable knowledge unless it can be expressed in words. Completely throws out the football team. You know, did you ever hear of the football team doing a thesis on uh, how to play football? Obviously not. Because that's something that has to work. Notice, too, in the academic world that all subjects which are effete are studied in terms of their history. <clears throat> when you start studying mathematics, you do not study the history of mathematics as you initial course, but history of philosophy, history of religions, is the start-out course in these topics. Medicine, you don't start studying the history of medicine until you're in graduate school. History of science is a graduate school subject. History of psychology. Whenever you think a subject is practical, you go right into doing it, rather than 
being historical about it. But the point simply is that you cannot pretend to be scientific and to adopt the gestures and attitudes and postures of scientists about things that are arts and that require a certain kind of personal magic, profundity, or whatever to carry them off. And so I would say that the thing that affects me and depresses me about the whole world of psychiatry, psychology, and psychotherapy is a certain extraordinary lack of depth and almost bending over backwards not to encounter anything profound. Because that would expose us to the charge of mysticism or some other bugbear. But this is quite fatal because what your patients are concerned with is profound things. Have you ever looked into the literature on the relation between psychotherapy and death? You will find a lot of blank pages. There's hardly anything about it. There are, I know of two books, and I don't know how many articles, I'm not in the habit of reading articles very much, but, uh, but so far as books are concerned, I know about two books outside of the work of Freud where he discusses uh, death wishes and so on, and outside the work of Jung who has said that he regards psycho, his kind of psychotherapy in particular as a task for the second half of life in which a person prepares for death. But by and large, uh, ordinary psych uh, psychotherapeutic work ignores the subject. Uh, likewise, the whole orientation of medicine to death is one uh, where death is a misfortune. It's not allowed to happen. Doctors don't prepare people to die. When somebody is in a state of terminal cancer, every, all their friends come around and say, cheer up, old boy, you'll be all right in another two weeks and we'll be back and having a beer again or we'll go out to the country and you'll be back at work. Love to see you in the office once again. This person knows jolly well you're going to disappear within a couple of days. And knows this and feels the strange mockery of his friend's unwillingness to accept this, and therefore a lack of genuine human relationship. <laughs> and so uh, the physician is in, embarrassed in a way that maybe a priest is not embarrassed. When somebody says to him, listen, I am sick of being ill, I want to die. I want to stop all this stuff being fed into my veins, and I, I'm, I, I want to be through. And uh, the doctor in his role can't say, of course, that's perfectly understandable. And insofar as the psychotherapist takes his cue from medical role-playing, he can't say to a person, all right, you should die. I think it's a good thing. It's, uh, a very wise man once said, uh, this was Ananda Kumaraswamy, 
I would rather die 10 years too early than 10 minutes too late. There's a time to die. And dying should be one of the great events of life, like birth and marriage, graduation, anything like that. No, uh, all cultures have had the rites of passage. But in our culture, death is a very strongly repressed event. We call it passing away. And our morticians, who call themselves that instead of undertakers, uh, make up bodies in the mockery of a beauty sleep. And they have a kind of oily, unctuous, avuncular approach, which is extremely beastly. And they make a huge racket out of the whole thing. You know, the, the, the fantasies about Forest Lawn, which is the epitome of all this kind of thing. Henry Miller's one, I was quoting to someone at dinner, where he says, swallow a dozen vitamins and throw anything down the hatch. If that doesn't work, see a surgeon. If that doesn't work, get a Hollywood funeral. They're the duckiest, cutest, craziest funerals in the world. You can have your beloved embalmed and sitting on a couch, reading something edifying like the Bhagavad Gita and smoking a cigarette. Cigarette guaranteed not to rot away before the lips and the buttocks. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? <clears throat> and this you see because the healing professions today are working on the basis, the metaphysical basis, of that 19th century scientific mythology. That this world is nothing but a mechanism. And that when you're dead, you're dead, as people love to say and lick their tongue around it. As if that really said anything at all. And so what we are reduced to is on the matters on which we are fundamentally embarrassed, we carefully keep silence. We have no answers about that. We'd rather not talk about it. It's the thing people are fundamentally fascinated with. Now you can rationalize all you want and say that questions about the ultimate meaning of the universe have no meaning. You can be as logical positivist as you please, but that will never quash the questions. And a person who doesn't somehow have a a sense of relationship with whatever it is that's eternal will rattle rather than speak. And so I would say to you, talking frankly here tonight, that the most important thing for any kind of psychologist or therapist is uh, not religion in the old sense of this word, because 
religion is something in our world partisan. Are you a Catholic or a Baptist? A Methodist or an Episcopalian? You deal there, you see, in those, in, in our sectarian religion. With things that are beliefs. And therefore, not knowledge. These are expressions of opinions and hopes. But they're not. These, these religions have no power. Because they have no knowledge. They have no experience. In fact, they hate experience. If you try and discuss, as I did, when I was a minister in the Anglican Church, problems of mystical experience, most clergy will say you're a nut. Because they will say, that's all subjective. And what matters is, do you adhere to a certain standard of traditional doctrine? Or behavior. That's objective. That's something we have out there. See? But when it comes to experience, actually, knowing something in your bones, they're scared out of their wits. And I said this afternoon, the same thing is true in psychiatrists. The psychiatrist is terrified to experience something outside the banalities of ordinary everyday consciousness. And as I said, he clings to that with a peculiar pattern. You know, I remember once I was undergoing an LSD experience and the psychiatrist in attendance, he wasn't a bad fellow at all. I mean, he was a very imaginative man, but he said, uh, what are five and seven? What are nine and three? You know, could I still negotiate these mathematical trivialities? And these are tests of sanity. <laughs> Now, I, I don't want to deride that completely because anybody who explores into worlds beyond the everyday world should be able, ideally, to come back with an account of what he's seen. I believe very much in being a bridge between worlds and being able to put into intelligible and rational language things that come from experiences beyond the intelligible and rational. That's the task of a poet. A poet is supposed to be a person who says what can't be said. At least he's always approximating to that. In a way, nothing can be described except to those who already know what it is. You know what I mean by water because you've tasted water and seen it. If you had never seen water, you wouldn't know what I meant by the word. On the other hand, what will I do with a person who is congenitally blind and he's never seen light and doesn't know what color is? I'm going to make a hell of an attempt to describe it to him. I'm going to exercise my all my wits and say, look, there is something like what you experience as different degrees of temperature. Do you know what hot is? You know there are many degrees of, from hot to cold. Now, there's something else like that. We talk about hot and cold colors, reds and blues. 
there are different ends of a spectrum which is like you experience between hot and cold or between rough and smooth. But this thing also is like what you hear in sound. You hear high and low notes and you can see a whole range of different tones between them. Now there's something else in which these things happen and it's a sense you don't have and so I can't tell you directly but it's like all that and I can really work on it give him an idea of something else he won't get it directly from my book but he will through the conviction with which I'm speaking and through the care with which I'm trying to outline this thing, know that there is another dimension beyond his imagination. And so in just the same way, there are dimensions beyond the imagination that our ordinary academic education gives us. It would be all right if we were as definitively excluded from them as people who are congenitally blind are excluded from color and light, but we're not. We keep slipping in and out of them, sometimes in a way that is beneficent, and sometimes in a way that is deeply troubling. When a person who is brought up in Arkansas and has no other religion than the fundamentalist interpretation of the King James Bible, slips accidentally into a mystical experience. There's no other way to describe what has happened to him than to say that he is Jesus Christ or God. This is blasphemous in his community. But to give him the benefit of the doubt, they say he's crazy. And whenever somebody says such a thing, we challenge them in our culture with technical questions. If you are God, command that this glass be made into a rabbit. How did you create the universe in six days? There was once a poor woman in an asylum who was asked this question, and she replied, I never talk shop. <laughs> But there it is, you see. These states do occur. And uh, psychology and psychiatry can do nothing with them except call them aberrations unless psychiatrists and psychologists have themselves explored these experiences. Because you have to deal with them. And because what is always being asked of you is, you see, people go to you today, whereas before they went to clergymen.
clergyman is a pretty hopeless case today because people feel that if they go to him with a real problem, all they'll get is platitudes. Especially if it's a moral problem of any kind, he'll be a little, he'll be understanding, they know that because he's been to a modern theological school where they had courses in pastoral psychology and counseling. But they know fundamentally that a clergyman is out to get you. He wants to enroll you in a community, in a church, and so that you'll be a regular contributor. They have a little bit more confidence in a doctor or somebody associated with doctoring because they know a doctor wants to get rid of his patients. A doctor doesn't want to get you hooked on medicine if he's an honest doctor. But a clergyman wants to get you hooked on the religion. So you people who stand midway culturally are looked to because you have the aura of science. And therefore people say, well, that's rather more objective. That's a little safer. I feel I can risk this person because he's not out to get me into some hocus-pocus. See? So I'm afraid of that clergyman because eventually, however understanding he is, he's going to wag his finger at me and say, naughty, 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 you mustn't do that. Especially, see, in effect today, our churches are nothing but sexual regulation societies. That's all they are interested in. They get a little bit riled up about race relations. But fundamentally, what can you get kicked out of a church for? That's the test. Especially if you're a minister. You can live openly in envy, hatred, malice, and all uncharitableness, hardness of heart and contempt of God's word and commandment. <laughs> and be a bishop. <laughs> but the moment you sleep with your secretary and furthermore continue to do so you're out, out, out if you're a homosexual it's even worse that's the test that's what it's all about well, let's reserve questions to a little later and then we can take them all together but, that, but over and over again this is the thing that matters so people who, for various reasons, uh, are involved in a form of love or sexual relationship, which is by these standards irregular, they know that when finally they get down to it with the minister, he's going to say, naughty, naughty, naughty. And uh, so it goes. So they don't go with him. Because he stands for pure swearing, however softly he puts it over a soft cell but they know with the psychotherapist they're going to get some less judging and more understanding attitude but they will pursue the psychotherapist to a certain extent and find that beyond a certain point he collapses because he doesn't know what to do with death he has no metaphysical ground the priest has too much metaphysics and he has no understanding on the level of uh, that the psychotherapist has competence in. So therefore, to be truly effective, the psychotherapist needs a, a kind of deeper vision. 
And he hasn't any reason to be afraid of it and to be feeling that this will injure his scientific respectability. Because as I've given you the clues this morning, you don't need to talk about mysticism. You need to talk about ecological awareness. There is always a language you can translate this into that will placate behaviorists, logical positivists, and other people who want to insist fundamentally that the universe is doubt. You see, that's what lies behind all these mythologies. The person who wants to say, on the one hand, that the universe is something that strikes him as profoundly mysterious, will talk about the Godhead and uh, things behind it. The person, on the other hand, who wants to say, oh, well, it's good. It's just thing that's not really very important. He'll find a language so as to describe the universe in a slightly contemptuous way. He'll say it's nothing but. And neither of these people can prove that what they say is true. They're just two different ways of expressing the kind of person you are or what role you're playing with respect to life. See, a lot of people want to advertise the fact that they are sound and reliable, and nobody can put over any nonsense on them. They're tough-minded. So in the academic world, they'll always play a certain role. And you can watch it. You know exactly what it is, how they come on. Other people want to say to those people, you dry bones, you rattle. You know the words, but you don't know the music. You see, all, really, all these people really are differentiated between two schools of thought. The prickly people and the gooey people. And on the side of goo, we have the romanticists. And on the side of prickles, the classicists. In medieval times, on the side of goo, we had people who were then called realists. And on the side of prickles, the people who were called nominalists. Now, realists believe that every man, individual person, was an example of an essence called mankind. The realists said that's a lot of nonsense. There are only particular people. There is no such essence called mankind. And today, uh, the logical positivists and behaviorists are examples of prickly people and uh, mystics and... Uh, uh, idealists in the Berkeleyan sense are examples of gooey people. And uh, this is an eternal debate. When you examine any substance closely, you find structure. But when your lens gets out of focus, you find substance or goo because you can't see the details. So it is all homogeneous, like homogenized milk. So depending on the level of magnification with which you look at life, you see prickles, or structure, and goo, or stuff. And all philosophical debates go along between these people. Whereas the truth of the matter is, of course, that life is gooey prickles and prickly goo. 
Now, don't get taken in by being too prickly. This is the thing that in our academic world today, considering what its fashions are, is the besetting temptation. The two secure oneself as an honest and respectable academician who is of sound scientific approach. People who ought not to be so prickly because they're dealing with things in which there are infinitely many variables put on the idea that they know what all the prickles in this psychological situation are and we just don't. You have to get a bit gooey. And don't be ashamed of it. So then, uh, we have to consider mythology. We've looked at myths. Now, two myths, which have been so influential on our culture. And one myth was an authoritarian, paternalistic one, that we are under God We are the subjects of a divine king who acts towards us in the role of a cosmic grandfather. This was all rather uncomfortable. And so, I, as I pointed out, there's a reaction in this. Look, the universe isn't interested in us at all. It was too interested in us, you see, with the God the Father myth. So the reaction to that is that it's not a bit interested. Nature cares nothing for the individual, only for the species. You know that story. Uh, I invite you to consider another myth. And I say myth. Which is, of course, the famous Hindu myth. That the universe is a drama. See, a drama is, uh, it, it is an image, just like an, uh, an artifact, considering the universe as something constructed, put together, manufactured. That's a myth. But the dramatic myth is different from the constructionist myth. In the dramatic myth, there is a very immediate relationship between any member of the world, that is to say, a human being, and the root and ground, what there is. Because in the dramatic myth, every one of you is basically connected with the reality which for untold billions of years has sparkled in these galaxies and nebulae. These are not things foreign to you. What you see outside you, or apparently outside you, although it looks distant and foreign, is most fundamental to you. There was sense in what is now only a superstition, astrology. Astrology 
as a means of predicting uh, what is going to happen to any individual in his life is, as far as I can make out, almost null value. But there was one sensible idea behind it. When you cast a person's horoscope, what you did was you drew a map of the then-known universe as it was at the time this child was born. And this was supposed to be a map of his soul. What an ingenious idea. It is to say, your soul is the whole world as it focuses upon your moment. Now, ordinarily, when we talk of souls, we think of something clad in a sheet with holes in it, you know, like a Halloween ghost. It is a kind of miasmic creature that inhabits your body, and when you die, it leaves you like the death leaves you. But that's not the soul at all. The soul is something which contains the body. The body doesn't contain the soul. The soul, if we put it into modern language, is the entire complex of relationships in whose context this organism exists. So it includes social relationships, communications relationships, dynamic relationships of heat and temperature, relationships with animals, with insects, with bacilli, relationships with gravity, with cosmic rays, and uh, interstellar balances. All these things, as they are focused at any individual point in the world, constitute the soul. That was the truth in the astrological diagram. But we are, as I said, taught to feel this system inside out. To ignore the soul and identify with the body, with the organism. It's not that the body and soul are different in the Cartesian sense. It's not that they're different substances. They're all the same world. The soul is the physical world in its entirety. And God only knows what that contains because uh, our senses are attuned only to a very small uh, spectrum band of the physical world. But there it is. And if you persist in screening out the knowledge of yourself as all that has been defined in our system of conventions as other than you, you're going to be very unhappy because you're going to feel estranged. And this estrangement that we, most of us feel in our culture is reflected in things that we do that are very destructive. We constantly hear of man's conquest of nature. And we talk about the conquest of space. And we talk about when we climb great mountains, we speak as if we were conquering them. Why this hostility? Look at this rocket. These enormous, aggressive phallic emblems being zoomed at the moon 
What do you think that means? They're going to screw the moon. <laughs> Poor old Venus. <laughs> well, now, this is a ridiculous way to explore space. We're not ever going to get anywhere in a rocket. It, it's, a, it's a crawling thing. It's a horse and buggy. If you want to explore space, the right direction to go is radio astronomy. Because that makes the outer space come to you. You don't have to go to it. <clears throat> You're in space. Here we are, floating on this earth, which is way out in space. We're already there. All we need to do to find out what's around us is get more sensitive, more open, develop things that are like the radio astronomical things. Maybe we can find instruments more sensitive yet than those. And they will bring the outside to us instead of going, boom. And conquering it. And so in the same way. In California where I live. Everything is being bulldozed. They go uh, to the hills. People would love to live in the hills. They take a bulldozer. And they flatten out old terraces in the Hollywood Hills and elsewhere. Make them into tract lots where they can build conventional houses that the banks will finance. Whereas any good architect knows how to put a house bang on the side of a hill with making no more alteration in the land than building a road to get at it. Better still, on the top of the house, a landing for a helicopter. And then those hills aren't disturbed. People who want to live in the hills presumably want to enjoy the hills. They don't want to destroy them by living there. But that's what they do. So they conquer the hills. They bash them about with bulldozers. And then the rains come. And since all the vegetation has been torn off, the, the soil starts to erode and eventually the house falls down the hill. So much. But a good architect goes to a hill and says, Good morning. I'm delighted to meet you. I would like to live on you. And I would like you to tell me what kind of a house you would like me to build on you. And so he studies the nature of hills and eventually learns how to live on one without disturbing it. As a Zen Buddhist poem which says of a wise man, Entering the forest... He does not disturb a blade of grass. Entering the water, he does not make a ripple. Because he first of all becomes one with the environment. That is to say, in our more precise scientific language, he studies thoroughly the ecology of the situation before he does anything to interfere with it. We must interfere. We can't help interfere with the world around us, because even to know something is to interfere with it. Even when you shine a light on something to look at it, you alter it by shining the light on it. When you examine the behavior of an electron, you change its behavior. And so you want to know, what does it do when you're not looking at it? Does the light in the refrigerator go out when you close the door? How can you look inside to see? But... If we are sensitive enough to recognize that the outside world is our own physical body, 
and that we should respect it, just as we respect our own feet, head, arms, and stomachs. Uh, that's literally true. It's physically true, not merely metaphysically. And so, with this fantastic technology that we have, we have power to alter the physical world as nobody ever had. But do we have the sensitivity to interact with the physical world as our friend, as our own body, as our own self? We don't have that sensitivity so long as our knowledge that this is so remains purely theoretical. Now, many scientists, biologists, ecologists, zoologists, botanists, uh, <coughs> forestry people, they know theoretically, up here, cortically, that this relationship exists. But they don't know it here. They are still Christian souls living in bodies, constituting egos that came into this world instead of having come out of it. And so, from, from my thought, what really constitutes therapy, not merely the therapy of peculiar individual variations of people who cannot adapt themselves to the particular social context, the, the, the important therapy is the therapy of the social institution itself, the institution of the ego. Individual variations will crop up, <clears throat> I think, anyhow, but they will crop up in extraordinary numbers in a society where the conventional view of the self is in such tremendous disparity from the state of affairs as we see it through the best tools of knowledge that we have. That's what one can claim for scientific knowledge. You can't claim that it's absolutely true, but you can claim that using the most careful means that you have of knowing anything, it shows you the world to be in a certain way. Now, if that's the way the world is, then the way you feel the world should ideally correspond to the way in which you know it theoretically. So the task of the therapist in this case becomes to help people to feel subjectively how it is to exist in a way that corresponds to the best of our objective knowledge. And that leads us into, you see, uh, areas which scientists have avoided. Because they are associated with religion and mysticism and weird things of that nature. And supposing then it does turn out That that which seems to me most far from you, most remote, most alien. You, you, you look out, take a telescope or whatever you have, and look out at the vast distances of space. 
and it seems all very foreign when you know it. That's because you've been hypnotized to feel it that way. When human beings thought at one time there was just a cozy little cosmos, the Earth was the middle of it, and all those planets were in crystal spheres, and right up there uh, was God the Father and the angels, and Jesus Christ, when he ascended, he just shot up a few miles, and he was there. Cozy. Then as a reaction to that, see, when people wanted to depersonalize the universe, because the personalization of it was too traumatic, they said, billions of light years, in comparison with which we are of no importance, just a reaction. Crazy billions of light years. And you can think across them. And then you go the other direction. And you look into your own physiology. And that's as queer and weird as anything there is outside. When you feel your own pain, it's a funny thing going from front of you. Give some people the creeps. You think about the fantastic structure of your own neurology. Is that me? It seems so strange. But the stranger it gets, the farther away it gets, the more essential it gets, the more it really is you, but unrecognizable. Until the moment you look at it amazing, say, so, well, that's me. As every device is used in the human game to stop you seeing that. Don't you dare. Don't you dare. And the best method of stopping it is here. Now, I was going to say something about it. Guilt, guilt, guilt. This is the prime emotion which cuts us off from the sense of solidarity with the whole works. And there are various kinds of guilt. There's academic guilt and there's religious guilt. Academic guilt is uh, you, you have to subscribe to the myth that man is not really important. And that uh, geology is more fundamental than biology. Older. And that biology is a sort of excrescence, a little fungus on the top of geology. See? Now, the, the whole point of guilt is that it's undefined. You are charged with a crime which has not been specified. This is the way all dictators and uh, uh, sinister people like that work. You don't know what you're charged with. <clears throat> what was original sin? It wasn't sex. You may be sure of that. You study the really subtle theologians on the subject of original sin. It's thrilling. What did Lucifer do? in the beginning of the world. Well, they say vaguely, his sin was spiritual pride. 
He loved himself more than he loved God. Well, that's pretty vague. But the really interesting theologians will say, you can no more put into words what the sin of Lucifer was than you can describe the vision of God. It's ineffable. It was infinitely diabolical, more horrible than anything you could possibly imagine. And incidentally, it wasn't just Lucifer. You are implicated in this. You did it. Something unspeakable. And you all jolly well know you did, and you won't admit it. Now, this is, can be a therapeutic gambit if you know how to use it. Some psychotherapists use this in their analysis of dreams. There's something you've done. I mean, it may only turn out to be the Oedipus complex. But, uh, incest wish. But, take it further. Take it further back. What is the awful thing you've done? Won't you confess? Don't you know? Adults play the weirdest games. Quite incomprehensible to children. And there's no explanation for it coming. So they feel strange. And so then, later on, everybody feels stranger. Poor old therapist gets caught in the sort of holding out. I wonder if it's ever struck you how curious a thing it is that most of the things that we experience we regard as things that happen to us, which we ourselves do not originate, which are events expressing some sort of power or activity that is external to ourselves. And if you consider that, you realize that what you mean by yourself is rather narrowly circumscribed. Even events that go on in our own bodies are put in the category of things that happen to us in the same way as things that go on in the world outside our skins. If there's a thunderstorm or an earthquake, well, it happens to you. You're not responsible for it. But so in the same way, when you have hiccups, you didn't plan on it. If you have belly rumbles, you had no intention of doing it. And as to the catastrophic act of getting born, well, you had nothing to do with that. And you can spend all your life blaming your parents for putting you in the situation in which you find yourself. And this uh, way of looking at the world in this sort of passive mood as something that happens to you goes right down to our general feeling about life. It goes down to the way in which, as Westerners, we have been accustomed to look at human existence as a precarious event in a cosmos that, uh, on the whole, is depicted as being completely unsympathetic and alien to our existence. In other words, if you're reared with a 20th century, or shall we say an early 20th century common sense, which is based on the philosophy of science of the 19th century, with its rejection of Christianity and Judaism, 
you regard yourself as an accident, a biological accident, in a stupid universe, which is mechanical, but has no feelings, no finer feelings. A vast, pointless gyration of radioactive rocks and gas in which you happen to occur. Of course, if you don't have that point of view and you are more traditional, you look upon yourself as a child of God. And therefore, under authority. In other words, there's a big boss on top of all this who allowed you, at his pleasure, to deign to have the disgusting effrontery to exist. And uh, you better watch your P's and Q's because that Almighty is looking after you with the attitude of this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. And uh, when you look at the world in that image, or in the other image, that it's a stupid mechanism, either point of view you take, you don't really belong. You're not really part of all this. And I could use a stronger word than part, only we don't have it in English. We have to say something like um, connected with it, essential to it, or to put it in the strongest possible way, it is quite alien to Western thought to conceive that the external world, which is defined as something that happens to you, and your body itself as something that you got caught up with, it is quite alien to our thought to consider all that as you yourself. Because, you see, we have such a myopic view of what oneself is. It's as if, in other words, we selected how much experience is really to be regarded as me. As if you focused your attention on certain restricted areas of the whole panorama of things that you experience and say, I will take sides with that much of it. Now, we come here right at the start to an extremely important principle which is the different points of view you get when you change your level of magnification that is to say you can look at something with a microscope and see it a certain way you can look at it with a naked eye and see it in a certain way you look at it with a telescope and you see it in another way now which level of magnification is the correct one well, obviously, they're all correct, but they're just different points of view. You can, for example, look at a newspaper photograph under a magnifying glass, and where with the naked eye you will see a human face, with the magnifying glass you will just see a profusion of dots, rather meaninglessly scattered. But as you stand away from that connection of dots, which all seem to be separate and apart from each other, they suddenly arrange themselves into a pattern. And you see that these individual dots add up to some kind of sense. Now you'll see at once from this illustration that maybe you, when you take a myopic view of yourself, as most of us do, 
But you may add up to some kind of sense that is not apparent to you in your ordinary consciousness. When we examine our bloodstreams under a microscope, we see there's one hell of a fight going on. All sorts of microorganisms are chewing each other up. And if we got overly fascinated with our view of our own bloodstreams in the microscope, we should start taking sides, <laughs> which would be fatal, because the health of our organism depends on the continuance of this battle. What is, in other words, conflict at one level of magnification is harmony at a higher level. Now, could it possibly be, therefore, that we, with all our problems, conflicts, neuroses, sicknesses, political outrages, wars, tortures, and everything that goes on in human life, are a state of conflict, which can be seen in a larger perspective as a situation of harmony. Well, it is claimed, you see, that some human beings have broken through to that vision. That they've slipped somehow or other into states of consciousness where they see the apparent disintegration and disorganization of everyday life as the functioning of a totality which at its level is completely harmonious. And you can say, aha, at last I see, I got the point. I've seen how all this makes sense. But what this insight depended upon was your overcoming the illusion that space separates things. That is to say, the space, the interval between your body and mine the interval created by birth at one end and death at the other. And then after somebody's death, then somebody else's birth. These are events with intervals between them. And normally we regard these intervals in time and these intervals in space as having no importance, no function. <clears throat> we tend to see the universe itself as really consisting in all the stars and galaxies. That's what it is. That's what we notice. But the space in which all this happens is sort of written off as something that isn't really there. But what one has to realize is that the space is an essential function of the things in the space. After all, you can't have separate stars unless there is a space around them. Eliminate the space and you will see you couldn't have this phenomenon at all. And vice versa. You couldn't have the space. They wouldn't be there in any sense whatsoever if there weren't the bodies in it. So the bodies in the space and the space are two aspects of a single continuum. They're related together in exactly the same way as a back and a front. And you just don't get one without the other. So the moment you see that intervals, that space is connective, you can understand at once how you are not just to be exclusively defined as a flash of consciousness that occurs between two eternal darknesses, which is the popular common sense view which Western man has of his own life. That you consider 
that in the darkness that comes before your birth, there was no you, and in the eternal darkness that follows your death, there is likewise no you. And I'm going to discuss these matters, not by appealing to any special spooky knowledge, as if I had been traveling on the higher planes and knew all my previous incarnations and therefore could tell you authoritatively that uh, you are much more than this individuality. I'm going to do it on a basis of complete common sense, that everybody has access to the facts. And that just what you have to realize is that life is a pattern of immense complexity. And what you call yourself as a living organism, say, I am my whole body at the very least. Now, what is that body? That body is recognizable, and I recognize my friends when I meet them again, with luck, and you recognize me. Although the last time any of you saw me, I was absolutely something entirely different from what I am now. Just as the flame of a candle is never a constant. A flame of a candle is a stream of hot gas. Only you say the flame of the candle as if it were a constant. Well, it is a recognizably constant pattern. The spear-shaped outline of the flame and its coloration is a constant pattern. But in exactly the same way, we are all constant patterns. And that's all we are. The only thing constant about us at all is the doing rather than the being. It's the way we behave, the way we dance. Only there's no we that dances. There's just the dancing. Just as the flame is the streaming of hot gas, just as a whirlpool in a river is a whirling of streaming water. There is no thing that whirlpools. There is the whirlpool. And in the same way, each one of us is a very, very delightfully complex undulation of the energy of the whole universe. Only by our process of miseducation, we've been deprived of the knowledge of that fact. Uh, not as if though, there was someone to blame for this, because it's always with our own tacit consent. Because life is basically a game of hide-and-seek. Because life is pulsation. On and off. Here it is, and now it isn't. And by being this pulsation, we know it's there. See, uh, you, you don't know what you mean by on unless you know what you mean by off. That's why when we want to awaken someone, we knock at the door. It's not enough to slam the door once with your fist and make a big noise. But you keep up a pulsation because that by its on and offness attracts attention. Uh, all life, you see, is this flickering in and out. Only there are enormous rhythms in it. There are very fast flickering ins and outs, like the reaction of light upon our eyes, such that if I take a lighted cigarette in the dark and I spin it, you will see a circle of fire. Because the reflection of that cigarette tip on your retina lasts, it endures, just in the same way as on a radar screen. An image stays a little while until it's revivified by another round. So in that way, you see, you notice continuity. 
And in the same way, then, you notice the continuity of a light, because although, like, say, with an arc lamp, an arc lamp is actually a flickering light. And that's why they don't allow arc lights to be used in any shop where there's a circular saw moving. Because sometimes the flickering speed of the arc light so synchronizes with the turning speed of the teeth on the blade that the teeth look as if they're not moving. And so anybody who might put his hand on the blade would have it chopped off thinking it was a still one. So in this way, very fast impulses are looked upon as constant. And we see where there are fast impulses, a solid thing. When you look at the blade of a propeller or an electric fan, the separated four or three blades become a solid disc. And you cannot throw an egg through it. Well, so in exactly the same way, you can't put your finger through a rock. Because the rock is moving too fast for your finger to go through. That's the meaning of the, of the whole phenomenon of hardness. Hardness in nature is immense energy. But acting in a very concentrated space, restricted space, but going to beat hell. That's why you can't get through it. Now, from those very tiny fast rhythms, which give us the impression of continuity, there are also in this universe immensely slow rhythms. And these are very difficult for us to keep track of. And they impress us and depress us as our own life and death, as our coming and going, which goes for what is, to us, such a slow pace that we can't possibly believe that it is really a rhythm. We think of it as our birth, as something quite unique that could never occur again because we're so close to it, you see, and it's moving so slowly. And so, with that point of view, we are, like uh, Marshall McLuhan has said, he borrowed a metaphor from me, which is that we are driving a car looking at the rear vision mirror. That means that the environment in which you believe yourself to exist is always a past one. It isn't the one you're actually in. The process of growth, the, the basic process of biology is one in which lower orders are always being superseded by higher orders. But the lower order can never figure out, or only very rarely figure out, what the higher order is that's taking over. And may see it as a terrible threat, as total disaster, as the very end. But therefore can never be aware that the principle of growth always has and always will continue. Whereas that's what's going on. But you never know what the next step is going to be. Because if you did know, you wouldn't take it. Because it would already be past. Do you understand this? That any certainly known future is an event of which we can say you've had it. And in that sense it's past. When we play a games and we say in chess or in a bridge or whatever game you're playing, the outcome of the game becomes certain. We at that point cancel the game and begin a new one. Because the whole zest of the thing, which takes me back to the idea that this whole thing is a hide-and-seek game, is that you don't know what the next order coming up is. But one thing you can be sure of, it will be an order, and it will comprehend you. At the moment, we stand at a time in history where we're beginning to think of a great countdown on the end of the human race. 
terrifying possibility that through atomic energy we may obliterate this planet and uh, turn the whole globe into a star. Maybe that's the way all the stars started. Imagine, you know, this great thing coming up. The countdown on the end. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Bam! that before you sit on the seashore and you hear the waves going in and out and you don't stop to think that's what you're doing that's what the whole business is doing and there are places where the wave mounts and mounts and it gets too big for its boots or whatever and it spills and breaks and we could do just that but uh very important to realize that that's what you're doing because then you don't get panicky about it and the person who's going to press that button is the person who's going to be in panic so if you realize that that's what it is and that uh, it doesn't really matter if the whole human race blows itself up then there's a chance that it won't do it that's the only chance we have not to do this thing which attracts us like a kind of vertigo, like a person who looks over a precipice and is all set to throw himself over. Or a person who jumps out of a plane when they're skydiving and forgets to pull the parachute ring because he gets fascinated with a target. It's called target fascination. He just goes straight at it, you see. So we can get absolutely fascinated with disaster, with doom. Or, you know, all the news in the newspapers is invariably bad news. There is no good news in the newspapers. People wouldn't buy a newspaper consisting of good news. Even the free press is full of terrible news. <laughs> Except the San Francisco Oracle. And uh, the fascination, you see, for this doom might be neutralized if we would say, well... Why bother about that? It's just another fluctuation in this huge, marvelous, endless chain of our own selves and our own energy going on. See, here's the problem. Because of our myopia, because of our, the way we've, as it were, restricted consciousness to focus upon just that certain little area of experience that we call voluntary action. That's us. And everything else happens to us. Now, that's obviously absurd. Let's suppose you take in your hand one of those toys, a, a gyroscopic top. And you suddenly notice, the minute you get this in your hand, that it has a kind of vitality to it. It seems to resist you. It starts pushing you in a certain way, see? And sometimes you're with it and following it. And then sometimes you see it. It's just as if you held a living animal in your hand. You know, you pick up a a uh, hamster, you know, or a guinea pig, 
And you hold this little thing in your hand, it's always trying to escape. So the gyroscope always seems to be trying to escape your hold. Now, in exactly the same way, what you're experiencing all the time, all sorts of things are getting out of control and doing things you don't expect. It's trying to escape your hold. All right, then don't grab it so hard. And you discover that this living thing that you're feeling, like the gyroscope top, it's your own life. Because you can see very simply that you would not understand the experience that you call voluntary action and decision, being in control and being yourself, unless in opposition to that, there was something else. You couldn't realize self and control and will unless there was something other, out of control, and instead of will, won't. It's the two together only that produces the sensation that you call having a personal identity. Only, there is a funny thing about human consciousness which has been worked out very carefully in Gestalt psychology, which is that our attention is captured by the figure rather than the background, by the relatively enclosed area rather than the diffuse area, and by something moving rather than what is relatively still and to all those phenomena that in this way attract our attention, we attribute a higher degree of reality than the ones we don't notice. That's only because, for the moment, those are more important to us. Consciousness, you see, is a radar that is scanning the environment to look out for trouble, just in the same way as a ship's radar is looking for rocks or other ships. And the radar, therefore, does not notice the vast areas of space where there are no rocks, no other ships. So in the same way, our eyes, or rather the selective consciousness behind the eyes, only pays attention to what we think is important. I am at this moment aware of all of you in this room, of every single detail of your clothing, of your faces, and so on, but I'm not noticing it all. And therefore, I will not be able to remember tomorrow exactly how each one of you looked and what you were wearing. Because what I notice is restricted to things that I think are particularly important. If I notice some particularly beautiful girl in the audience, then I might notice also what she's wearing. And uh, that would be memorable. But by and large, you see, we scan things over, but we pay attention only to what our set of values tells us we ought to pay attention to. And so in this way, we have this uh, rather myopic way of looking at things. And we screen out from attention anything that is not immediately important to a scanning system based on sensing danger. But quite obviously, you as a complete individual are much more than the scanning system. You are in relationships with the external world that on the whole are incredibly harmonious. Going back to this illustration of every living body as something like the flame of a candle. The energies of life in the form of temperature, light, 
air and food and so on are streaming through you all at this moment in the most magnificently harmonious way. And you're all of you far more beautiful than any candle flame. Just sitting in these chairs, just going, you know. Only we are so used to it. We say about that, so what? Show me something interesting. Show me something new. Because it's a characteristic of consciousness that it ignores stimuli that are constant. When anything is constant, it says, okay, that's safe. It's in the bag. Needn't pay attention to that anymore. And therefore, we eliminate systematically from our awareness all the gorgeous things that are going on all the time and instead only become focused on the things, the troublesome things that might happen to upset it. Which is all right, but we make too much of it. And become, we make so much of it that we identify our very selves, I, ego, with the radar, with the troubleshooter. And that's only a tiny fragment of one's total being. So that if you do become aware that you are not simply that scanning mechanism, but you are your complete organism, then very swiftly, in turn, as a consequence of that, you become aware that your organism is not the way you think about it when you look at it from the standpoint of conscious attention, from the standpoint of the ego. From the standpoint of the ego, your organism is uh, your kind of vehicle, your automobile, in which you go around. But from a physical point of view, your organism is again like the candle flame or the whirlpool. It is something which is a continuous patterning or activity of the whole cosmos. The key idea here is pattern. Let's suppose uh, I'm going to borrow a metaphor from Buckminster Fuller. Suppose we have a rope. And one section of this rope is made of uh, manila hemp. The next section is cotton. The next section is silk. The next section is nylon, and so on. Now, we tie a knot in this rope. Just an ordinary one-over knot. And you find by putting your finger in the knot, you can move it all the way down the rope. Now, as this knot travels, it's first of all made of manila hemp, it's then made of cotton, it's then made of silk, it's then made of nylon, and so on. But the knot keeps going on. And that's the integrity of pattern, the continuing pattern, which is what you are. Because you might, you know, for several years you might be a vegetarian, and you might be a meat eater, and uh, so on, and you know your constitution changes all the time, but people, your friends still recognize you, because you're still putting on the same show. It's the same pattern. That is, the recognizable individual. But we are trained in our language. The very structure of the language we talk deceives us into misunderstanding this. Because when we see a pattern, we ask, what's it made of? Like you see a table. Is it made of wood or is it made of aluminum? But then when you inquire into what is wood and how does wood differ from aluminum, 
The only thing a scientist can tell you is the different patterns, that is to say, the different molecular structure of the two things. And a molecular structure is not a description of what something is made of. It is a description of what dance it is performing. What motions, what kind of a symphony this is. Because basically, all phenomena of life are musical. And uh, gold differs from lead in exactly the same way that a waltz differs from a mazurka. It's a different dance. And there isn't anything that's dancing. That is a deception we get into because we have two parts of speech in our grammar. We have nouns and verbs. And verbs are supposed to describe the activities of nouns. And this is simply a convention of speech. You could have a language with only verbs in it. You don't need any nouns. Or you could also have a language with the nouns only and no verbs. And uh, it would perfectly adequately describe what's going on in the world. So if you were used to speaking with a, part, with a language that had one part of speech, you could say just as much as we can with two and be a lot clearer. Only at first it would sound awkward, but you'd soon get used to it. And then when you got used to it, it would be a matter of common sense that the patterning of the world is not some kind of stuff that's patterning. You don't have to seek for a substance underlying the whole thing. It's just patterning. And we're all that. And so in this way, there is, to a person who really wakes up, you very soon realize that your existence is not something that is just the uh, hopeless little creature that's suddenly confronted with a great big external world that goes at him, you know, and eats him up. Every tiniest little thing that comes into being. Every minute little fruit fly or gnat or bacterium. I will go so far as to say is an event upon which this whole cosmos depends. This thing goes both ways. It's not only that every little organism which exists depends on its total environment. The reverse is also true, that the total environment depends on each and every one of those little organisms. So that you could say, this universe consists of an arrangement of pattern in which every event is essential to the whole thing. Now, we screen that idea out of our consciousness in exactly the same way that we screen out the perception of space as an important reality. Just as we pay attention to the figure and ignore the background, so we see one way of looking at things, namely that the organism is very frail against the environment. It lasts a long time, the environment, but the organism only lasts a short time. What do you mean the environment lasts a long time? What does the environment consist of? Just a lot of little things. And yet there is the environment just as the same way as there is the face in the newspaper photograph behind all those little dots. When you get far enough away from it, you see the face. When you get far enough away from all the organisms and the little bits of things, you see the environment in another scale of magnification. But actually, 
the whole thing is arranged in a, a polar system where the enormous depends on the tiny and the tiny depends on the enormous. And you get a relationship between these extremes which can be called a transaction. That is to say, a transaction when there's buying and selling. It's impossible to have buying without selling and selling without buying. So you, you always, wherever you are looking at the general panorama of sensory experience, try switching. Try shifting your attention to all the things you thought were unimportant, to the constants, to the background. And begin looking at the spaces between people. Uh, all painters have to learn this. Because especially if you're working in oils, you actually have to paint in the background. Weavers know this. Because when they're making patterns in weaving, they've got to weave the background as well. Or if you do needlepoint with embroidery, think of the hours you spend putting in the background over the canvas in wool. And you become aware of it. Same way the people who made the, the great oriental carpets. They're much more aware of the background as constituting an essential part of the total experience. So, as you become aware of this, you will see the same thing that you notice in music. Namely, that it is only as a result of hearing the interval between tones that you hear any melody. If you don't hear the interval, you're tone deaf. And all notes are the same noise. All you hear is rhythm. You don't hear any melody. You've got to hear the interval. So then watch the intervals between people. The things that aren't said. The things that are tacit. The things that are implicit rather than explicit in all life. And then you begin to get connected. Now it's very important to have a connection in life. And um, to be in the know. And uh, this is the way it, it, it fundamentally comes out of seeing the thing you forgot. You know, you can always bug people in a beautiful way, in a very helpful way, by just saying to them, what did you forget? Say, well, I don't know. What was I supposed to remember? Oh, I'm, not, I'm, I'm really not trying to put you on. Uh, I mean, it's not difficult. This is something completely obvious that you forgot. You, you'd easily remember it because it's so obvious. Well, that's the hardest thing in the world to think of. What's the most obvious thing I forgot? Oh, what's that? Well, who do you think you are? Well, how do you answer that question? Who are you? Well, you give a name. You say, I'm Joe Dokes, I'm Alan Watts. That's not true. That's what people told you you were. They put that name on you and they taught you to identify with it and to behave as it was expected to behave. But that's not who you are. You know very well. Go back in your memory. Go back into your infancy before they started telling you all this stuff. Who are you? And if you get with that, you'll know uh, very well who you are. The jolly old ancient of days. Only there's a conspiracy that you mustn't let on about that. 
because everybody is. And uh, if one person realizes it, the other's a little bit offended. And they say, well, uh, how come you're so great? We worked it in Christianity by a very clever thing of allowing just one individual to be recognized as the God incarnate. And uh, nobody else, therefore, could be. And since he had been safely crucified and whisked up to heaven, he wouldn't bother us anymore. So everybody, therefore, who gets an intimation of who they really are and ever comes out with it in Christian civilization, people say, who the hell do you think you are? Are you Jesus Christ? Well, you can say Jesus Christ said he was Jesus Christ and everybody put him down for it and that's what you're doing to me. Oh, they say, forget that one. Because uh, it's like uh, somebody comes out and composes some perfectly terrible music. And the critics say, this man is a cacophonist. He is completely incompetent. And he said, did you read the reviews of Beethoven's first symphony when it was performed at Vienna? Now, the thing is... (laughs) (laughs) we allowed one person, you see, one human individual to be the incarnate God. Because we have all been living in a theory of the universe in which the individual is simply involved in something that happens to him. And we feel that this thing that happens to us is reality. It is facts that we have to face and accept and cope with. See? It's always something other than you. You don't recognize it as an integral part of your own being. Without which you cannot know what you mean by the word I. But in the truth of the matter is, though, that if uh, you will face it out, Every single one of us knows that that isn't true. There is a, as it were, a recess of the soul, of the psyche, where everybody knows perfectly well that you are not just this irresponsible little mouse that's been chucked down into this world, but that you are really doing this work. You're running it. Only you can't admit it just in the same way as you can't admit that you're responsible for the way your own heart beats. You say, oh, that's not my doing. I have no control over my heart. Do you have any control over being conscious? Do you know how you will? And you say, I intend to take my hand down from my face and put it on my leg. I can do that, but I don't know how the hell it's done. So that what we mean by the capacity of voluntary control in the ordinary sense of the word is is that we don't understand it at all. So you might say, in, in a funny backwards way, that the only kind of control you really understand is that way you're not using your will. Because you just do it so easy, like you open and close your hand. You know how to do it? Sure you know how to do it but you can't put it into words and explain to someone how to do it. 
You say, well, come on, aren't you human? Don't you know how to open and close your hands? Do it, silly. But we don't realize, you see, that just as we know how to do this, we know equally well how to turn the sun into light, how to blow the sky, how to blow the wind, how to wave the, the ocean, how to um, digest food, and um, I might add, to be digested by bacteria and transformed. As we transform our steaks, uh, we will in turn be transformed. But the um, pattern keeps going. And it's always you. Only you see you have this marvelous capacity to transform yourself without knowing that you're doing it. Therefore, you keep surprising yourself. And therefore, you keep on doing it. Because if you didn't surprise yourself, you wouldn't go, you wouldn't go on doing it. It's just the very fact, you see, that you seem to be the victims of the thing you don't understand and that you seem to conclude your life every time in a wipeout called death where all your control goes is just exactly that opposite condition to what you call being alive that allows you to be alive. Only every time it happens, it's like it's new. It's like every time you're born, it seems like it was the only time. But of course, if it wasn't like that, you wouldn't do it. When Hindus and Buddhists use the word karma, the basic meaning of it is action. From the Sanskrit root, kri, to do. And therefore, there is some error in the common translation of karma as a law of cause and effect or of cosmic retribution. As a man sows, so also shall he reap. Uh, it has a Western flavor, which is a little causal. The way the Buddha put it was slightly different. This arises, that becomes. Because between this and that, there is a polar relationship. And the full explanation of karma in Buddhist philosophy is called Pratitya Samutpada, which means the interdependent origination of all the forms and phases of life. Pratitya Samutpada. And there are twelve links, shall we say, in the chain of interdependent origination constituting a circle. And the existence of the circle depends on the presence of every one of the links. From one point of view in Buddhism, the chain of interdependent origination is looked upon as a chain, that is to say, as a form of bondage. The constituents, as it were, of the vicious circle in which most people and beings are living, which they call samsara, S-A-M-S-A-R-A, -S -A -A, samsara, the round of birth and death, the bhava chakra, the wheel of bhava which is becoming. And uh, so going round and round and round in the endless game of hide and seek, 
is from one point of view bondage. Bondage to karma. And if you study the Bhagavad Gita, which is not a Buddhist book, but a Hindu scripture, Krishna, the spokesman of the Gita, explains that the wise man is one who does what is called nishkama karma, nishkama, N-I-S-H-K-A-M-A, meaning um, passionless activity, in the sense that he acts without seeking a result, without being motivated by the fruits of action, and therefore is not bound by his own action. You can be bound to samsara, the wheel of birth and death, by iron chains or gold chains. The chains are, I mean, I'm talking in a, more or less the language of popular Hinduism, that if you do bad deeds in this life, you will get bad result next time. If you do good deeds in this life, you may be reborn as an angel or uh, as a monk, uh, in which you'll get a better chance of liberation. But still, so long as you're looking for results, be they good or evil, you're still bound. Now, the way in which one becomes, as it were, free of karma involves another Buddhist point of view, which is a kind of, a different way of looking at the chain of interdependent origination. It's the way which the Japanese call Jiji Muge. That is to say, the mutual interpenetration of all things and events. So that you could say that actually, in fact, deep, the deepest level of reality, this entire cosmos is a completely harmonious and blissful manifestation of uh, everything in a state of total enlightenment and mutual compassion. And therefore the task of the Buddhist or the Hindu discipline of meditation, the sadhana, the way of spiritual development, is to realize that for everybody, to realize it effectively in his own life. And therefore cease from the illusion that the universe is a fragmented uh, process of conflict. But first of all, we have to be clear about karma, that it is not to be understood in the Western sense of a law of cause and effect or of a sort of retribution system or a law. The word law is most unsuitable for concepts in Eastern Indian and Chinese philosophy. The word dharma, D-H-A-R-M-A, sometimes meaning the Buddhist doctrine, or a certain way of life, when you talk about a person's svadharma, you mean their own function. We would translate svadharma as vocation. Sva is the same as the Latin suus, one's own. Dharma, function in this case. Operation, way of life, style of life, profession, trade, role. means all those things. And the one thing that dharma really never means is law, although it's often translated that way. Because, you see, you don't get the idea of law until you move to a culture 
where order is based on the idea of obedience. In, in the West, you see, our, the origins of law spring from where? The laws of the Medes and the Persians, the laws of Hammurabi, the laws of Moses, and later Roman law. The only healthy legal tradition we have in the West is British common law, which proceeds in an entirely different way from code law. Because you see, the difference between code law and common law is that code law is laid down by the wisdom of an all-powerful ruler who tells everybody how they must behave and they must obey him. But common law is evolved by discussion of particular cases rather than referring all the time to abstract principles which are put down in words. And the judge, the good judge, is a wise man, a man with a sense of equity and fair play who arbitrates an issue which is debated in front of him and from the precedent which he creates by his decision, common law evolves. You see, that's a more organic way of producing law. The code law system, which we inherit from our most ancient theological backgrounds, is a tyrannical method of law by imposition. And so you must understand that in both Hinduism and Buddhism, there is really no fundamental idea of obedience to a personal ruler. Certainly not in Buddhism. A little bit sometimes in Hinduism. But even then we get terribly mixed up because, for example, I was talking of the Bhagavad Gita. This is often translated, the Lord's Son. Now for Bhagavan or Bhagavad in Sanskrit, Lord uh, is an English equivalent is quite inappropriate. Because a Lord is one who lords it over you. Bhagavan is a title of reverence and respect and love. Uh, the, the song of the beloved would be much better, in a way, although it's not quite correct from a strict point of view. We don't really have an equivalent for this word, the, the Bhagavan. So, the, the, although you see there ha has been in India itself uh, tyrannical rule, and although the Arthashastra, as a manual of politics, it gives directions to a tyrant as to how to govern by absolute power. Going along with this exposition of this very Machiavellian point of view to government is the constant advice of the sage. Yes, this is what you have to do in order to fulfill your office as a ruler, but never forget that you'll never succeed. The more you try to rule things by force, the more you will stir up violence against you. And so you can never hold on to your power and your possessions. It will always flow away from you. So there was one of those great Rajas of ancient India who asked a jeweler to make him a ring that would restrain him in prosperity and support him in adversity. And the jeweler wrote on the ring, it will pass. <laughs> But when we come to the deep cosmological and metaphysical ideas, we don't have law in the Western sense. And therefore, nature is not looked upon as something which is an orderly system because it is obeying a commandment.